It's Wednesday morning, August 25th. This edition of Real Talk is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. That was Ayla Brooke and the Soundman, by the way. Bitcoin Well is Canada's, nay, North America's, no, the world's first. And as of right now, only publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company. They're proudly headquartered out of Edmonton. They've got Bitcoin ATMs across the country. And of course, their wheelhouse is explaining and making accessible cryptocurrency to people at all ranges of ranges and ranges, depending on where it's at, high, low. If you bought low, sold high. If you bought high and are holding, you may have different levels of rage. I know Adam O'Brien, the CEO, would just say buy and hold, buy and hold. My pal Chiver is doing the same thing. Buy a crew, a crew, buy and hold. I'm not telling you to buy. I'm not telling you to sell. I'm telling you, if you have questions, you can find Bitcoin well under the sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We've got a great show coming up today. As I, as I just uh, tweeted in response to Sarah Hoyle's tweet from our official account, at Real Talk RJ, it's just an absolutely star-studded Canadian media lineup today with Paul Wells and Lyndon McIntyre on the same show. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, I don't know why I felt it. Why did I just? It's because it's hockey day. We skate later today. Me and the boys, we skate every Wednesday. I just about called him Wellsy. I've never met the guy in person ever. We've spoken before. I've never. I better not call him Wellsy. I'll ask him how he feels about that. But that would be the hockey. Hockey nicknames are lazy. You just throw. You just I throw. I love in, them. He'd be Brooksy. I don't know what I would because my nickname was Jespo. I kind of grew up with it. It wasn't. It wasn't bestowed upon me in a in a hockey locker room though. Would it would it have been Jespy? Probably not Jesper. Maybe Jespo. Who knows? It works. I I like when I know everyone calls you Jespo, but I like where my gut goes is Jespy. Yeah, I think Jespy's kind of a little more like pat you on the head, like good little boy, Jespy. Jespo so you want me like, to yeah. you want me to call you Jespy? Yours is what would I'm be hearing. yours. We would just add it would be your last name plus e. It would be Hoylesy, <laughs> probably. <laughs> That's probably how it would go. I got a lot of Hoyler. Uh, oh yeah, or the or the Hoylers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I I've got hockey on the brain right now because there's there's a couple of former pro hockey players that are sharing their medical advice and their scientific interpretations on Twitter and they're driving me crazy. Oh, because right they're, now. you know, medical experts. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, right. you know, Brandon Prust has probably spent enough time in the hospital from hits to the head that he probably maybe has, has started to think that he's a doctor. People will say Ryan's making fun of CTE. Ryan's making fun of concussions. No, I'm not. I'm just making fun of people that are sharing their personal opinions. Uh, someone will say, well, what makes you any different? Well, my dad's a doctor does that give me some credibility no. my dad i always say to people my friends hey do you think this looks do you think i need to go to the hospital i'd say well you know my dad's a doctor let me take a look <laughs> so so you've got a couple and then you got dustin penner uh a former la king a former edmonton oiler former anaheim duck uh who, who's also been been sharing his thoughts on twitter over the past couple of days and they're driving me nuts so maybe maybe i have hockey players on the brain right now i don't know what's going on with that but paul wells wellsy will be joining us in about five minutes and then lyndon mackin McIntyre, I, I feel like Lyndon McIntyre, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to spend too much time. It doesn't need to become a thing on the show where we keep reverting back to who's on the Mount Rushmore of what. But in my opinion, when it comes to Canadian stories.
storytellers. And I realize I'm, I'm opening up a can here because there are some phenomenal ones. Mm. Uh, and with Lyndon, you might say, well, are you talking fiction or nonfiction? Right. Because you might say if you're talking Canadian storytellers, for example, Margaret Atwood better be on there. Uh, but if you're talking Canadian journalists, then you better. Ha- there's this whole group over here. And did they have to did their careers have to be in Canada? You know, I find excuses to talk about Peter Jennings all the time, <laughs> but he'd be up there. Lyndon McIntyre for me. Uh, I grew up watching Lyndon on the Fifth Estate yeah. and just a phenomenal storyteller. So he's got a, a work of fiction out, The Winter Wives. It's been out for two weeks. It's already a national bestseller. And uh, we'll talk to him about that. But I want to talk to him about journalism, the state of it. I want to I want to pick his brain. I mean, we know him as more of a long form journalist, but as if he's not intrigued by a federal election, I'm sure that he is. So that's coming up this show. We'll also talk to a good friend of the show, Harman Singh Candola. What's the world sick organization doing when it comes to evacuees or refugees out of Afghanistan? And Eric Kleinenberg, a professor at NYU, will join us to talk about public space we're talking about election issues, uh, continuing daily discussions, including if a leader like Justin Trudeau or Aaron O'Toole or Jagmeet Singh start talking about public spaces or investing in infrastructure, we might say, OK, and you try to wrap your mind around it. Oh, they're going to build 500,000 new units of affordable housing or they're going to invest this many billions or trillions of dollars into public infrastructure. It's hard to put into perspective what that means for you and your community. What does that mean for for our group or our circle, our everyday life? Eric's done a great job uh, via his book, and he's going to be uh, coming, as a matter of fact, uh, to speak about palaces for the people. That's his work uh, in our city, in our home city in September. But his message, of course, out of NYU, applicable and relevant to anybody uh, that lives in society that was a really broad anybody in society and for those of you that subscribe outside of society to our podcast I was say on the fringes on also. the fringes <laughs> you're also welcome to participate in the conversation <laughs> plus we got to talk about i mean just the, the real life stuff on the ground i was out and about a little bit yesterday we're, we're excited of course our little guy getting ready to go to grade one and so we're school supply shopping and we're making the rounds i had to restock the real talk beer fridge so we're running some errands get a haircut i'll tell you what everybody's talking about everywhere i went yesterday is mask mandates coming back in some canadian provinces at least right now and and vaccine passports mm-hmm. i mean that's what people care about right now so when it comes to mask mandates i mean some provinces are going back to where they were seven weeks ago that's right bc and uh, and manitoba are, have both said that and then passports coming into effect september 1st in quebec and in bc september 13th all right so this is uh I know for a lot of people going to be perceived as maybe we'll go to this with Wells first, because I'm, I'm curious to know where he lands on this, just even as a as a citizen, just as a person mm. for a lot of people. I, I mean, I'm paying attention. You, either social media either is not real life or is. But I think it's a good barometer sometimes in a consistent or a pervasive message I'm seeing from people. Why did we do all that? I mean, I we're going back eight weeks where I mean, I guess we can forget about fall plan. I guess we can forget about winter plans. I think some people feel demoralized as they see case counts continue to rise again. Yeah. I mean, being demoralized. Uh, check. Yeah. But not everybody wanted to be there. I think that there was a lot of optimism. I, a lot of people. I mean, I'm stopping myself from talking about best summer ever which was the marketing slogan that the Alberta government attempted to pull off. I mean, they Uh, trolled Albertans with it. But I know that a lot of people that don't consider themselves to be partisans, 
They're just regular folks. They're not always in the trenches on social media. They, too, were excited about summer. They, too, were excited that that, you know, Canada was 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 leading the G7 in vaccines, that, that Canada was doing a great job, that people appeared to be on board. And now I think when when we've hit a snag, which is a really chilled out way of describing a fourth wave with a highly contagious Delta variant. As we've hit a snag, Sam. <laughs> Sam, I can tell by your facial expression you feel as though my description was insufficient. We have hit a bit of a snag. Just a bit. Just a, just a little snafu there. That's Where are you at right, right now with it, though? I mean, are you the guy that's already, you know, printed off and laminated? You're taking the extra initiative. Would you be able to produce proof of a vaccination or a vaccine passport, so to speak, I, right now? So this is interesting because, like... I've seen, like, you know, a lot of people would go to the big AHS facilities, Alberta Health Services, if you're here in Alberta, and and get the vaccines at these mass clinics. And they always had the same paperwork, and they were showing them off. Right. These, like, you know, very sort of official-looking government forms. I got my vaccines at a pharmacy. And so they didn't give me anything that had, like, a government stamp on it. They basically just gave me the, like, prescription ticket right. off of the thing. And so people are wondering things, what's acceptable. Yeah. It's like, so I've I have been wondering... For a month and a half since my second shot, like, is this is this proof enough? A guy comes up to me yesterday. True story. He comes up to me yesterday and he says, hey, man, what's your opinion? He's a business owner. And he says, what would be your opinion on whether or not I were to mandate as a business owner, as a private business owner, uh, proof of vaccination for my business? What do you think? He just wanted to pick my brain on it. And I said, well, here's the pros and here's the cons. Right. And we kind of went into it. And, and, and I said, let me give you an example, though. I popped into your business right now uh, spontaneously. I was driving by. I saw it. I realized I needed to get it, you know, take something off my to do list. I pulled in. Bam. Here I am. I said, now I am double vaxxed, but I do not currently right now have proof of vaccination on me. I said, so, you know, were you to preclude me from shopping here? Then that might be one example. However, there's a bigger picture. There's a greater good type idea. I said, plus, that's only going to happen to me once. If I forget my proof of vaccination, I'm going to go home. I'm going to print it off or whatever I need to do. And then next time I drive by your business, I'd be back. So let's all take, keep our perspective here. He says, yeah, or you could just use this. I said, what's this? He goes, I have my proof of vaccination on my phone and he shows me no he shows me and i'm looking at it and i'm looking at the numbers i'm like dude your name's not even on this thing it just has the name of the vaccine like the manufacturer and the date i said your name's not even on here let alone a qr code let alone your photo let alone any i said this could easily absolutely easily be faked and so i think that there's you know there's got to be some sort of a thing this is a conversation on multiple levels on first of all access to vaccines second of all what the vaccine passport looks like or what passes as one and then i think even bigger picture who's responsible for putting this in place should every single business owner wrestle with this or should municipalities or provinces and territories i think it may be outside the jurisdiction of the federal government but i'm not even sure about that real talkers we're teeing this up because we want to know where you're at on it uh, real talk rj our hashtag is probably the best place to go with this uh, you can also of course send us an email anytime to talk at ryan paul wells is coming up in just a second we wanted to remind you that the edmonton symphony orchestra is back together for the first time the full eso back together for the first time since march of 2020 it's the return of their wildly popular symphony i mean this is 
Symphony Under the Sky, to me, is one of the highlights of the summer calendar on a quote-unquote normal summer. And now it seems this is about as normal as it's going to get because we're starting to see a lot of indoor events, especially those impacting the arts communities. Those indoor events are starting to be canceled. Meantime, National Hockey League teams are among those saying they're going to require vaccines. Gosh, we got a lot to talk about. You don't have to worry about it. At Symphony Under the Sky, they've got their distanced seating options, including that grassy hill. If you've been to Horlock Park, you know what I'm talking about, where kids under 17, if they're accompanied by an adult, sit free. That's right. Tickets start at 20 bucks for adults. You can find out more at windspearcenter.com. Symphony Under the Sky takes place in Horlack Park from August 26th through till September 5th. Also, big shout out to our friends at Park Power. A reminder, they're providing internet, electricity, and natural gas services. And you have a choice where you get your utilities from. They're your friendly local utilities provider across our home province, the province of Alberta. The promo code 2021-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill. You can take your business over there. I know this because I've done it. You go on the website. You don't have to call. You don't have to break up. You don't have to have that awkward text with your ex-power provider. You don't have to take them to Denny's and sit them down in the corner table and talk about how it's it's not them, it's you and things just aren't working out and come on for a while i mean i haven't even plugged in my appliances for like three weeks it's just not working we've lost that spark park power handles it all for you 2021-real talk the promo code all right, let's get serious. Paul Wells is a household name when it comes to political coverage in Canada. He's a senior writer at McLean's Magazine, where he's been for almost 20 years. He's been covering politics in Ottawa for almost 30. Author of the 2014 book, The Longer I'm Prime Minister, making his Real Talk debut this morning. Paul, it's great to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. Ryan, thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be invited. I don't know why I took it in this weird direction, but as I teed up your interview this morning, I, I said, Wellsy's going to join us. And I thought, that's you don't just jump to a nickname with someone you barely know. Did you grow up being called Wellsy? No, because my older brother was more athletic than me, so he got called Wellsy, and I got called Wellsy's little brother. <laughs> Wellsy's little brother. All right, good stuff. The third choice at street hockey. Uh, hey, Paul, you must, though, I, I, lace up your skates, so to speak. Anytime there's rumblings of a federal election, we've got different opinions from different pundits on this one regarding the appropriateness of the prime minister's call. Uh, did you see this coming from a mile away? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was told in late June that the target date was August 15th or 16th to launch the election. Um uh, none of us has the sight lines into a prime minister's office that we that that most of us used to have. Uh, this PMO is, if anything, quite a bit more tight-lipped than Stephen Harper's ever was. And because I'm often critical of this government, they really don't let me in on their secrets. But I do know a liberal who had been told that they were aiming for August 15th. So this was the furthest thing from a surprise. Can you take us behind the curtain of what it's like? I mean, you're, you, you would be the Ottawa insider. Uh, take us into the curtain. What you mean? I think some people will be surprised to hear that the Trudeau PMO uh, is more locked down or if i can invoke the word secretive is is that too much that was stephen harper's reputation wasn't it yeah um it's true just about uh, across uh disciplines across uh um, um work fields i mean i hear this from hockey reporters uh who 20 30 years ago could uh ride to practice in the car of a uh, someone playing for the Habs uh, in Montreal uh, while the guy uh, cradled a, a drink between his knees as he was driving. Yeah. Um, uh, and now laments that the only time they get to talk to uh, 
uh, uh, hockey players is, is in the organized scrums behind the rope line at practice or after a game. Uh, similarly, when Stephen Harper was being accused of being incredibly tight-lipped, I happened to notice that uh, um, the um, White House Press Gallery in Washington hired Len Downey, a former editor of the Washington Post, to write a big fancy formal report about why the Obama White House was so secretive and tight-lipped. So even as we were complaining in Ottawa about Stephen Harper, our colleagues in Washington were complaining about Barack Obama. And Stephen Harper and Barack Obama didn't have much in common, except this. They came to power during and immediately after the rise of social media, mm. when there's just an avalanche of information and misinformation and allegations. And uh, and almost everyone in politics has worked to, well, ha- has worked to deal with that in various ways. And, 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 and most of them do it by telling us only what they want us to know, telling you what they want you to know through their Instagram accounts and Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. They don't need us as much as they used to. And they're not shy about reminding us of that. You, uh, do you have a complicated, or maybe it's actually quite simple for you, relationship with social media. You used to be on there and then, right? Yeah, I tend to overdo things. Uh, I eat too much. (laughs) Back in the day, I used to drink too much. Uh, I was doing too much Twitter and it was not making me happy. So Mm. I quit. Yeah, did that that hurt your business i mean did, did it hurt you know i've always felt I, I remember my employer i used to host a show called breakfast television my employer mandated that i get on twitter and i was i was dragged kicking and screaming onto twitter and then and since then i've justified it to people people have said if you if you weren't a, a public figure a commentator would you still be there and i've said i'm actually not quite sure but but i'm, I'm almost certain it would hurt the show if i wasn't there it doesn't seem to be hurting your career um, it probably does, uh, but I don't care. I, um, uh, I, uh, I was nastier on Twitter. Hmm. I was more dismissive of people. You get in, you get in fights. Um, and after a while I, I learned that I had to stop doing that. So I stopped doing it, but I could, it, when you're on Twitter, you still see everyone else doing it to everyone else. And so after a while, I just said, you know, that's enough. Um, it's always possible to look at uh, a Twitter account just through, your web browser. Yeah. So I stay on top of what, uh, you know, five or six uh, accounts that I trust. David Frum in the States, Andrew Coyne, uh, my colleague, uh, Chris Selly at the National Post. I, 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 um, uh, what's the word? It's not Snoop. Anyway, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, you, you lurk, you know, you know, yeah, some people, I lurk. Some people I lurk their accounts. On, on social media, people tend to prefer the, the verb creep, but it always seems to me <laughs> to be a weird one. Uh, so yeah, let's stay away from that one. I think that yeah. lurk is fine. I was I was yesterday. I mean, Rex Murphy had another call him out yesterday. I'm reading every time the guy has a call him out. He trends on Twitter and he's virtually impossible to track down publicly. And I thought, you know what? It's kind of a power move if I mean, Twitter is still advancing Rex Murphy's column, whether you love him or loathe him, you're going to click on it to see why he's trending. Uh, You know, I mean, you know, Charlie Watts and Rex Murphy were trending for different reasons yesterday. You're going to click on to see why. And then you're probably going to read his piece to see if you agree with it or disagree with it. A guy like Rex, a guy like you might say, why do I need to be on there? The medium's doing my work for me anyway. Yeah. So I still have a, 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 a journalist in uh, Facebook page mm. and I post most of my columns, the ones I'm proud of on, on my Facebook page. 
And uh, somewhere out there, there's a Twitter account called Inkless PW Feed that just just mechanically uh, scrapes that that Facebook account and posts the stuff onto Twitter. Um, I typically send what I write to this uh, National News Watch website, which is where everyone in Ottawa goes for their headlines. Yeah. So I, I, I find ways to let people know that I've written something. But if they if they don't like it and they want to dump about dump on me on Twitter, more power to them. I just I'm I'm relieved not to have to read it. And if they love it. That's great, but I don't know about that either. Yeah, fair enough. It probably keeps you a little bit more balanced, right? Don't they, they say never yeah. read your own headlines? Uh, you know, I was yesterday observing uh, a guy that's door knocking. I don't know him personally, but he said a reminder, and he put this out on social media. I don't know if that's ironic or not, but he said a reminder elections are not won on social media, elections are won at the doors. He's like, if you feel strongly about a candidate, a platform, a party, knock on doors, tell your friends, help fundraise. But then I see a lot of you know, I see I, I see press secretaries. I, I see issues managers for governments. I see politicians. It's kind of funny if they're going to tell us that Twitter's not real life or social media doesn't win elections because they sure spend a lot of time on there. I mean, look what one of the compliments you'll hear about Jugmeet Singh. Oh, he nails TikTok. People talk about that. I mean, do you think that social media does factor into elections or or, or, or is it maybe sort of more significant than we might actually I mean, is less significant than we might give it credit for? So I used to have a rule of thumb that the campaign that spent the most time on Twitter would lose. Yeah. Uh, Justin Trudeau um, broke that rule in 2015 and has broken it since then. I think in a complex time, you have to do everything. Uh, but as liberals remind one another, um, like the, 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 the sort of incantation that liberals love to repeat during campaigns is go knock doors. Uh, it drives me crazy as a grammarian that they leave the on out of that phrase, but you know what they mean. Um, uh, posting family pictures on Instagram, uh, tweeting clever retorts to conservative columnists. That's great. But if you're not meeting people face to face, if you're not uh, spending at least a few seconds hearing their concerns, trying to respond to them, you're not winning. And um, campaigns that have uh, a robust online game and a serious energetic ground game are the ones with an advantage these days. Mm. Your piece uh, at McLean's.ca a couple of days ago uh, is a conservative minority government even possible. And, and we'll get into the, the crux of it because it's a fast. I mean, you go deep into the weeds in a fascinating way to describe how the same vote result could could turn out two different prime minister scenarios. I mean, we'll get into that in a second, but you open. I mean, you just had me with your lead. Justin Trudeau on Monday continued his surprised by Canada tour in which he flies from coast to coast, warning Canadians about the looming threat of things that are already happening. That's one way to characterize it. How, how would you assess it? People are saying he, he appears to be surprised by the election that he called. Yeah. Um, so to some extent, uh, they've had a lousy first week. Um, they, he, he didn't have, I, so I remember J J uh, Jean Chrétien called early-ish elections after only three and a half, three years in 97 and in 2000. In 97, he couldn't really explain why he was having an election. The obvious reason was because uh, he, he liked his chances and he wanted to try for a better result and it, and it didn't work out very well. In 2000, he had a better answer and he got a better result. If you can't explain why, you're, if you choose to have an election, if uh, it's not just because your time has run out or because you've been defeated by your opponents in a, in a confidence vote in the House of Commons, if you just decide, eh, it's a good day for an election, you better be explaining really uh, in a compelling way to Canadians why you're bothering them. 
And uh, the, the prime minister's had a lousy week trying to come up with reasons. Um, uh, and one thing that fascinates me with, about this prime minister, he's, he's said to be a great communicator. He's said to be uh, gregarious and, um, and relaxed and at ease with himself. Uh, but he often doesn't improvise very well. And when he runs into trouble, there's usually a couple days of adjusting before he comes up with even a, even a kind of a lousy response to it. Um, obviously it works for him. He's been prime minister for six years and he's still, um, well, you know, leading in most recent polls, uh, you know, and, and, and still has a really good shot at winning this election, but sometimes it's not lovely to watch. Yeah. Probably pulling tighter than he'd like right now. Safe to say, but, but at the same time, I guess it, you know, there's, you know, perceived eons between now and September 20th. There's plenty of time to, I suppose, change the narrative. And and I know that Canadians are probably pretty eager to see some more specific policy uh, from the liberals. What do you, what do you make of this so-called, I mean, probably, you know, the, the, the flavor of the week might be, and we've talked to a couple of, we talked to David Hurley a couple of days ago. He's noting Aaron O'Toole's surging popularity in Ontario. Uh, Hurley says to our audience uh, on Monday, you know, most people up until three days ago hadn't have considered Aaron O'Toole to be a, a potential prime minister, but he believes that that's changing. Do you see that? And, and do you see it happening outside of Ontario? And you think it's sustainable? Yeah. Um, I see it happening. I see it happening outside of Ontario, and it may be sustainable. Um, uh, Aaron O'Toole was the big surprise of the first week. Uh, just about everybody who knows him in Ottawa likes him, enjoys chatting with him, finds him an amiable fellow, and thought that he had really underdelivered in his first year as opposition leader. Uh, no clear position on a lot of things, uh, not a really compelling public speaker, and on and on and on. So, um, on the first full day of the campaign, the campaign's launched last Sunday, on the Monday he comes out with this platform, which is twice as thick as the Liberal platform in 2015, if that counts. Um, it's uh, uh, full of detailed policies on stuff that normally doesn't even get discussed in uh, in federal elections. A lot of foreign policy stuff. Uh, really specific policy on addiction uh, treatment that... Uh, flat contradicts what Stephen Harper did for a decade. I mean, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes more of an issue, including uh, an issue of disagreement among conservatives. There's stuff on food security. There's stuff on like that is just not ever going to be debated. But what it does is it suggests that he's got a, you know, if he does become prime minister, he's got a plan that whoever the transport minister is, they're going to have to implement the detailed uh, um, policy in the conservative platform, which may probably will be for some voters quite reassuring. You weren't sure what uh, uh, an Aaron O'Toole foreign minister would do. Well, now you've got page after page of detailed answers on that. Um, you know where you know, I th- you know where uh, I find an example, Paul is, um, and 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 I'll note that this this quote came from uh, Conservative MP Michelle Rempel Garner, so it wasn't from Aaron O'Toole himself. But I saw yesterday, you know, she said, you know, Trudeau's basically waffling on whether or not Canada will recognize a Taliban-led Afghani government. She says Aaron O'Toole, Prime Minister Aaron O'Toole, will never recognize a Taliban-led Afghani government. Now, it's certainly taking a position. I wonder at this point if people may have questions on whether or not that's an intelligent thing to say while Canadian troops are still trying to get out of there with Afghani citizens as well. But might that be an example of something where you think it's an important step for the conservatives to plant a flag on something? Yeah, um, uh 
I mean, I if I was prime minister, I would not recognize the Taliban. Um, uh, they're already showing that they had 20 years in the penalty box yeah. uh, uh, um, and worse, uh, and they haven't rethought their positions on anything because their conception of Islam does not permit them to rethink anything. And there's so they're they're still big on the beheadings and the executions. Um, uh, Bill Clinton used to say, by election day, I want the people who vote against me to know exactly why they're doing it. Huh. In other words, uh, he always thought that you're better to be clear on where you stand. Um, and some people won't like it, but some pe- some other people will have something to rally around. And uh, I personally am not a big fan of these big, thick, detailed uh, platform documents because they essentially hogtie governments years into the future when we just spent a year and a half. Uh, the whole planet getting a really uh, stark lesson in how it's impossible to predict what's going to happen next. Um, but that's a that's a kind of an intellectual uh, concern. What we've seen is that these detailed platforms are really good at filling in blanks where people weren't sure about uh, a party that hasn't recently been in government, that they tend to be persuasive. The classic example is uh, Jean Chrétien in 1993 with his Red Book. Uh, You'd, by the end of that campaign, you'd throw whatever question you had at Kretchen and he would say, he'd wave the, the platform document around. He'd say, it's in there, read it. I mean, and it was never clear whether Kretchen had read it all, but he, you know, he had a good answer for any question you could throw at him. Yeah. It was kind of reminiscent of the Rob Ford gravy train thing, right? Every question was just met with the same cookie cutter response. Uh, Paul, you, this, this piece of yours in McLean's a, a couple of days ago is a conservative minority government, even possible tease up several different scenarios where, uh, a vote total could mean Canadians would see either Prime Minister Justin Trudeau or Prime Minister Aaron O'Toole. It's not the type of thing the average person would be aware of, which is why we're excited that you're here to talk to us about it. Can you, in layperson's terms, you do a great job laying it out in the piece. Can you kind of explain this to us, how this could work? You're, you're predicting or at least you're prognosticating about a pretty tight horse race. Yeah, I'm well, I'm 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 considering possibilities. Yeah. Um, uh, the ghost of Christmas future, he doesn't tell you what what Christmas in the future must be. He just shows you what Christmas may be. Um, um, and, and, and these 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 questions always come up when it when it when a race is tight. And my colleagues who are traveling with the party leaders end up pestering the party leaders for days on end. Jagmeet Singh, will you work with Aaron O'Toole? Uh, if it's a minority. And, 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 and so I just thought I'd get out ahead of that speculation. Basically, the rule is not that the party with the most seats forms the government. We've seen many examples in Canadian history where that was not the case. Um, in Ontario in 1985, uh, the Conservatives won more seats than any other party, but it was the Liberals and the NDP who together formed the government. In British Columbia in 2017, uh, Christy Clark, the incumbent Liberal Premier, uh, won uh, one more seat than John Horgan's NDP, uh, but ended up having to end her political career because John Horgan reached over to the Greens, who had only two members, and um, and they they they, they formed a, a kind of a loose coalition. Um, and I believe there was a minority government in New Brunswick a few years ago. Now. So what do you really need? If you don't need the most seats, what do you need? You need the support of enough members in the legislature to command a majority on important votes, usually money votes. Uh, 
Now, usually they're the same thing. Usually the party with the most seats commands a majority in the House of Commons or in, in the legislature. Uh, but every once in a while, there's there's wiggle room, room for interpretation and room for deal making uh, as as different contending parties try and, 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 and get the support of that lasting majority. And of course, there's a the classic case in 2008, just weeks after the election in 2008, Stephen Harper had the most seats. Uh, he went on to govern. And then several weeks later, the Liberals and the NDP and the Bloc didn't like uh, the way he was governing. And so they tried to gather around Stéphane Dion uh, to form an alternative government. They wrote to the governor general, uh, and it all collapsed because uh, even even then the, the the numbers were really really shaky on the coalition side. But these kind of games are things that can happen. And what's in, per- after a close election? And and you lay it out. What's particularly interesting is that people might be kind of going, okay, it sounds like this could be decided by accountants and lawyers. Uh, but that's not yeah. exact. That's not entirely true. I mean, you describe a scenario where perhaps the liberals could falter, but the stubbornness of a prime minister, of Justin Trudeau refusing to leave, could keep him in the position, right? I mean, there's a human factor, too, that plays into this. Yeah. I mean, what we saw, again, in Harper versus Dion in 2008 was how tough are you? Yeah. Uh, Because Dion had the numbers just barely. I mean, uh, for my money, they should never have tried that coalition. It was way too shaky. And as we saw, it didn't last five weeks. But they had more numbers than Harper did. And Harper uh, rallied public opinion against that coalition and got the governor general to prorogue, to delay um, sitting parliament for five weeks. And that five weeks was all it took to to, to fall apart. But uh, in the doing, that came down to um, who had... Uh, the math on their side and a willingness to fight uh, as hard as it took uh, to win. So the scenario I sketch out is say the conservatives get 140 seats, the liberals get 130 seats and Justin Trudeau decides he's not going to quit. It's, it's pure hypothesis. I I actually write in the piece, probably what would happen is that uh, Trudeau would resign and the liberals would go to opposition and the conservatives would form government. That's what usually happens. And I don't think uh, there'd be a huge uproar. But if Trudeau decided to fight, even though he's got fewer seats than the um, than the other party, than the Conservatives, in my hypothesis, um, the op- the other opposition parties have a choice to make, because, like I said, there's 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 only a small number of rules. One is the party that commands a majority in the House of Commons gets to govern, uh, and the other is the party that formed the government before the election still forms the government after the election unless it resigns or gets defeated in a vote. And a government has the right, a returning government has the right to try its luck in a vote in the House of Commons. So Justin Trudeau says, um, oh, I know I've got 10 fewer seats than the Conservatives, but I've got the hearts of the nation with me and off we go into a bright future. He writes a throne speech. He has Mary Simon deliver the throne speech. She would have no choice but to deliver his throne speech. And then the House of Commons votes on what happens next. And then Jagmeet Singh and Yves-Francois Blanchet as the leaders of what I assume would be the biggest opposition parties have a choice to make. Do they vote to support uh, this brazen attempt to keep governing after uh, after after losing seats um, by the by the Liberals, or did they vote essentially to make uh, Aaron O'Toole the Prime Minister? 
And, you know, my guess is that they would vote different ways, that the bloc would go would 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 prefer that Aaron O'Toole be prime minister and that Jagmeet Singh, after the decade we've all lived through. It's true that Jack Layton supported Stephen Harper in 2006. But since 2006, we've had that coalition crisis in Ottawa in 2008. We've had Trump and Brexit and a, a, a polarization of our political debate. And I just don't think I don't think new Democrats would let Jagmeet Singh act in a way that would permit Aaron O'Toole to become prime minister if he could stop it. I think that would be essentially the effective end of Jagmeet Singh's leadership of the NDP. And so that's why, you know, that's why I think it's worth rehearsing all of this in advance. Uh, I I appreciate your perspective as a, as an Easterner, Paul, uh, you know, we're, we're talking to you from Alberta and I, and I, and to be honest, and, and you understand politics at a depth, uh, much more impressive than mine. I, I sit there and I think really like the Bloc Quebecois would prefer a conservative prime minister. And, and my bend on this or my bias on this is, is this inherent, Ah, it's it's the it's the thing between Alberta and Quebec where deep down inside a bunch of Albertans actually admire Quebec because Quebec kind of calls its own shots and has its own sovereign society and its own distinct culture. And it gets treated differently by prime ministers. And, and we know all that stuff. At least that's the narrative from here. At the same time, there's kind of this loathing. Right. And, and I think that a lot of conservatives on the prairies would probably expect a conservative prime minister to take a really hard line or as hard as they could on Quebec. Do you, do you forecast or would you predict something different? Yeah. I, I mean, almost for as long as I've been covering politics, I've been, I've been noticing and sometimes writing about the odd relationship between Alberta and Quebec. I remember when Ralph Klein was premier uh, of Alberta and Jacques Perizzo was the newly elected premier in uh, Quebec. Uh, I remember calling Rod Love, uh, who was Klein's um, right-hand man and talking about uh the efforts that they were making to reach out to Jacques Perizot to try and get some stuff done uh in federal provincial relations. Um and I'm not saying that Yves Francois Blanchet, who I have to remind people is the leader of the Bloc Québécois, he's so barely known outside Quebec. Uh that yeah, so the guy I'm talking about is the guy who leads the Bloc Québécois these days. He first of all he hasn't told me that he would prefer a conservative government. Um, I'm guessing. And and if he does, it's not because he thinks Canada would be better governed by conservatives. He doesn't care. Uh, he thinks um, that a conservative government but led by a rookie leader with no representation in Quebec or not much would be um, easier to get concessions from. It would be easier to roll uh, an Aaron O'Toole conservative government than to roll a Justin Trudeau Liberal government. Uh, one thing that Blanchet has said is, uh, basically, it's 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 uh, his 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 main platform plank in this election. We want a weak uh, federal government so that Quebec can make gains. Mm-hmm. We don't want you know you should vote to block a liberal majority. That's what he's telling people. Well, so the next step in that is if you want to vote to block a liberal majority, and if things get weird and everyone's got a, a decision to make. I think he would prefer uh, a weak rookie conservative government to an experienced liberal government that he doesn't particularly get along with. 
Let's stick on Quebec for a second, because I think it's it's one jurisdiction in Canada where you can find good examples of a, of a different model or a unique model of healthcare delivery that would include or integrate so-called private delivery. And this has been a an early theme, to be certain, uh, in this election. I, I, I saw a tweet from Matt Gurney yesterday, who uh, kind of funny. He said, basically, to paraphrase it, is this basically going to turn into an election where two guys are arguing about feeling the same way on public health care? The Trudeau liberals are coming at the O'Toole conservatives saying they want to privatize the O'Toole conservatives firing back with the assistance, I think, of Twitter corporately, which flagged a Christian Freeland video. As as you know, it kind of blew up in the liberals face there. But O'Toole saying, hey, there will be universal public access here for whatever reason. And I say that somewhat facetiously, public health care, universal health care is that sacred cow in Canada or one of very few. Do you think that this election is going to be about more than that or is this turning into an election on health care. I think it's going to be about more than that, but I think I think uh, what we're seeing, uh, the Nano's tracking poll this morning, they come up with new results every day, suggests that uh, the last three days of brazen fear-mongering by the Liberals seems to be having an effect. The Liberals are up to their highest point since the uh, campaign began. They've opened up a new uh, lead over the Conservatives. My phone is ringing. Um, and... Uh, uh, and what that shows is in politics, what counts is the truth, but what also counts is, is um, what you say that appeals to people's hopes and fears. And there's a long, long history of liberals uh, essentially posing as the defenders of Medicare. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But um, that's the dynamic that we're in now. Yet at the same time as as you we look to you for analysis and insight. When you confirm your booking on this show, you tell our editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles, that every election entirely surprises you anyway. Oh, yeah, that's the fun of it. Um, I sometimes get asked, uh, you know, politics is so packaged now. Uh, they only tell us what they want us to see. They have spend millions of dollars on consultants and teeth straightening and hair jobs and all that stuff. And like, you know, but the thing is, uh, in the pressure uh, of day-to-day politics, and especially in the pressure of an election, uh, I've, I've never covered an election where there wasn't a meeting beforehand where someone said, well, this is a boring election. We're not going to have to cover it too much. This is, everyone knows that it's going, nothing's going to change. And then in the end, all kinds of crazy things happen. It turns out the prime minister spent the 90s black wearing blackface uh, to social occasions. It turns out that the conservative leader is, uh, kind of an American citizen uh, last time, not this time. Um, uh, uh, Jack Layden goes from nowhere in 2004 to 103 seats in, in, in 2011 to dying. Uh, you can't package politics. Hmm. It's too human. The stakes are too high. People are too uh, imperfect. And uh, and that's why, look, I just sketched out the most elaborate scenarios for what might happen after an election. I am here to tell you, I have no idea what's going to happen after an election. That's why I'm covering it. And well, and this is why we're excited to have you here, because when it does happen, we can say you called it at mcleans.ca and, la- and later on real talk you can read paul wells great work at mcleans.ca his piece just a couple of days ago is a conservative minority government even possible paul been a big fan of your work for a long time really appreciate your insight here thanks for joining us thanks for having me Ryan. you bet and of course you unfortunately can't follow paul wells on twitter 
but you can find his work all over the internet and uh, subscribe to McLean's. I like. Are you are you the types? Do either of you? Do you guys like holding a magazine in your hands? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. big. Do you subscribe to like paper magazines? I used to. You used to be able to get like I. I used to get. Uh, oh, I used to get Wired. I used to get GQ. I'd occasionally pick up a McLean's from a yeah. newsstand. Yeah. I love grabbing magazines before getting on a flight. Yes. It's my favorite thing to buy in the airport. It's a little, yeah. little treat yourself. Yeah. A couple of new magazines. Are you do you, do you have some that you like go to in paper form that you like to hold? My folks do, and so whenever I'm over there, uh, I like go and I find the McLean's and I sit down. What's your uh, What's your protocol with regards like with the ethics of a scenario if your parents have just Received a new magazine, but it catches your eye. Is that like into the little into the little side bag? Oh, no, it, it remains at their house. Oh, okay, I got I, it. I won't. I won't. Yeah, I won't pinch it and take it over to mine. No, no, no. Fair that's, enough. That, come on. Fair enough. I'm I, ethical like that. Okay. Well, good. Yeah. I mean, especially when it comes to your parents, you just never know. I mean, maybe they're watching right now, figuring out exactly where all their magazines <laughs> have been going. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I'm I'm the same way. I love. I mean, obviously, reading online, I read a lot on my phone, I read a lot on the tablet and stuff like that. But I like I, I was like holding it. I like getting sand in there and, and spilling like there's like the drink ring of like two thirds of the margarita glass just like kind of wrinkling the page. You know Mine's I mean? always coffee. But yeah, I'm right there with yeah, you. Yeah, Well, some of us have a job to do around here, Hoyles, and that's you. So you're on the coffee. <laughs> Sam and I are on the margaritas. That's how it works. I'm okay with that. And it works out well. It works out well, doesn't it, team? Uh, before we get to Harmon Singh Candola, we're going to broaden our focus here internationally. Uh, Harmon, with the World Sick Organization of Canada, I wanted to remind you that we've got something very cool coming up. I just want you to mark your calendars. This is more of a heads up than anything. Uh, first, to our Patreon supporters, a huge shout out to you. You can uh, learn more about those that support us on a monthly basis at the top of the page. Click on Patreon at RyanJesperson.com. Check your emails this Sunday. You're going to have advanced access to a tailgate party that my wife Carrie and I are throwing in partnership with DeRoche Villages. We're excited about this. It's coming up on September 11th. And then if you subscribe to our completely free Sunday message, it's an email that'll wind up in your inbox Sunday afternoon, evening ish. You can learn more about that at the bottom of the page at RyanJesperson.com. You can subscribe for free. Join the thousands that do. It gives you a heads up on what's coming up on the show, some of the highlights from the week before, and sometimes tips on very cool stuff like this tailgate party. It's a homecoming season marching into DeRoche Villages. You can learn more at DeRoche.community. Beautiful show homes built by Daytona, Jamin, Landmark, Pace Setter. We're going to give you a chance to book a private appointment to check out these places. Oh, and we're going to send 75 small groups to the Battle of Alberta, the Edmonton Elks versus the Calgary Stampeders. You can find out more by checking your Patreon inbox, by checking your emails next, next Sunday. And of course, September 11th, the big event. We'll tell you more about that in days and weeks to come. Our friends at Eden Landscaping are working hard to wrap up this summer's projects. Of course, they've got a number of different crews out there bringing outdoor spaces to life. They don't shut it down in the winter months. That's when they go into full design mode. So whether it's a vegetable garden box or an outdoor kitchen or a pizza oven. It was at my Uncle Clark and Auntie Debbie's place. They've got their new pizza oven outside. Game changer. Game changer, this thing. You know, it takes like 60 seconds to get a pizza done out there. Unbelievable. Doesn't hurt that it's at the side of a swimming pool. Eden Landscaping can do it all. Mike and his team ready to take your inquiries. You can learn more about what they're doing at landscapeedmonton.ca. Plus, a shout out to our friends at Athabasca University. You know, it's been a long time since people have seen their kids heading 
back to school. And for a lot of people, the educational experience has been nothing but digital for the past 18 months. It's resonated with some, especially those that have realized that how on-demand online learning can really fit your schedule, right? In a post-secondary sense, no commuting, right? The schedule works around when you're available. Athabasca U is Canada's online university. They've been doing this for years. It wasn't a rush effort in March of 2020 to whip something together. You can check out their website, Athabasca U, for more on how you can tap into their world-class accredited online programs. Well, yesterday, a powerful interview on this show. We had an opportunity to speak to an Afghan Canadian. She spent her early years of life born and, and raised in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. What an unbelievable picture she painted telling us about her family's experience, many of them still in the country that is now experiencing such great unrest. Of course, people around the world are doing what they can to provide safe shelter and in many cases evacuations for Afghan citizens eager to lead. Roads to the airport have been closed by the Taliban, who says Afghani citizens will no longer be permitted to evacuate as that October or rather August 31st lineup, uh, that deadline, of course, quickly approaches. President Joe Biden reiterating yesterday that despite the pleas from other G7 leaders, the United States intends to stick to its deadline of August 31st. The prime minister Justin Trudeau yesterday saying that Canada and Canadian soldiers will stay as long as they can. But of course, people tapping into common sense will recognize that Canada and Canadian soldiers safety is very much dependent on their American colleagues. So there are a lot of balls in the air and there are a lot of people around the world doing what they can outside of levels of government to bring some semblance of safety to the thousands and thousands of people attempting to flee. One of them is a lawyer based in our home city of Edmonton. Harman Singh Candola is vice president of the World Sick Organization of Canada. He's on Edmonton's Anti-Racism Advisory Committee board, and he happens to be a member of Real Talk's editorial board as well, which we're thrilled to have him on that team. Harman, thanks for making time for us today. Well, thank you, Ryan, for covering such an important topic. Well, you know, so many people have so many different angles on this story, and many of them are so personal. Why is the World Sick Organization of Canada so intent on contributing as many efforts as you are right now here? So uh, back in 2014, we were contacted by Afghan Sikhs and Hindus who were living in Afghanistan at the time. Uh, and they outlined, you know, the threats that they were facing from the Taliban and from ISIS. Um you know, and, and they started to lay out their desperation uh, even um, seven years ago, uh, you know, in their current conditions. Uh, and they were begging and pleading for um, support and assistance in relocating or or being able to, um, you know, shift as, as refugees to a different country. And so for the past six years, the World Sick Organization, along with our partners at the Manmeet Singh Polar Foundation, um, many Albertans and many people will remember um, the late Manmeet Singh Polar uh, who was a minister uh, in government, but someone who had taken this on as a personal personal mission um, to help uh, religious minorities who are facing discrimination to relocate. And so, for the past six years, and seven, you know, we've been advocating and pushing the Canadian government to create a pathway for um, refugees uh, from Afghanistan to relocate. And you know, it's been a very difficult journey. It's been six years of kind of um, you know, in the face of 
a, a government that has not shown necessarily the will in the past uh, to help or, or to be aware of some of the risks. And, you know, since, since our initial ask, uh, the situation had only continued to deteriorate. Um, you know, religious minorities in Afghanistan have been targeted by Taliban for the past six years. You know, we saw numerous uh, situations and incidents that took place, attacks on the, those local communities. Um, and if, you know, if I can share is, you know, we, I'll always, I'll never forget last March when um, some um, uh, ISIS um, gunmen had entered into a Gordwara and Kabul and killed 25 Sikhs, uh, including the four-year-old uh, Tanya Kaur. Yeah, and, and you can see uh, some photos of even the next day when they went to cremate the bodies uh, of the victims, they were then targeted with the bomb blast outside of the cremation ground. And so even in their in their moment of, of grief, um, they were still being targeted um, for being a religious minority. And those scenes were just heartbreaking, um, you know, as, as Canadians, um, you know, and, and as, um, you know, a country that had, um, you know, taken a role in, in the military operation there, it, it was heartbreaking to watch as, you know, the situation has deteriorated. And again, you know, with intelligence as it is, um, we have been there at the government's doorstep for the past six years to tell them that this situation is only deteriorating. It is getting worse and worse. We have an obligation to do something. And it's been extremely frustrating, to say the least, um, you know, where, where there's just not been the will. Um, and, and it's been a struggle because even other relocation options have been shut down for a lot of these um, Afghan Sikhs and Hindus, you know, into other areas or regions. And, you know, a lot of people um, and now their only option really is to go to India from where they can then apply to come to Canada. And, and you know, that's that's got its own challenges because the Indian government is not a um, signatory to the 1951 UN uh, Refugee Convention, nor a signatory to the 1967 um, protocol on the status of refugees. So with that, what you have is, you know, a country in India that doesn't necessarily give status to refugees the same way that we would if a refugee was in our country, um, which leaves these people to be vulnerable. And so we've seen, you know, um, not only Afghan Sikhs and Hindus, but Afghans who've relocated to India in the hopes of applying for refugee status um, being left essentially with little resource and, and little ability to kind of, you know, whether that's to send their kids to school, whether that's to have jobs, whether that's to have access to healthcare, um, and so the situation for them is just as dire. You know, just a few months ago, you know, many Afghan Sikhs um, and Hindus had relocated to India for a period of time, but with the COVID crisis there, you know, there was Gurnam Singh, who was the president of the Gurdwara and Kabul. He ended up going back because his only daughter had died of COVID due to lack of oxygen in, in Delhi. And so it was just completely tragic. You know, they were just shifting from one place of desperation to another place of desperation. In the meantime, you know, the Canadian government was not actually um, hearing our calls to help expedite their um, relocation to Canada. Harmon, back on uh, August 13th, the government of Canada announced a special program for Afghan refugees. What, what are the implications there, if any, uh, for Sikh and Hindu minorities there? Yeah, so, you know, essentially it wasn't a direct evac um, of those who were still stuck in Afghanistan. Um, you know, and what we've seen with what the Taliban has been saying or um, is that essentially, you know, they don't want Afghan uh, nationals to leave. Uh, they they want to prevent them from leaving. So, you know, for, for those who are still there, um, and it's a very small um, group of people, you know, it's a, 
Uh, back in 1992, the population of Afghan Sikhs and Hindus was closer to 2,000. But after the collapse of the Soviet regime, it's 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 deter you know it's diminished significantly. And in the past six years, we were talking about you know just a few hundreds um, in different different areas. And then in the last year, you know we're talking about maybe 200 uh, remaining Afghan Sikhs and Hindus in Kabul. But the implication is you know that they need to somehow find their way on their own um, out of Afghanistan to you know, a, a different nation such as India, where from there they can then apply under this program uh, for relocation. Now, there's already people who, who've been waiting in India and Delhi uh, for relocation. They've already applied through you know, the, the typical Canadian refugee process. And we've been asking for a program of exp uh, that's ex expedited for several years. So you know, number one, I think the 20,000 figure doesn't go far enough. Um, because there's many, many other Afghans who are looking to, uh, you know, apply as refugees. And for the actual Afghan Sikhs and Hindus that are in Afghanistan, you know, it was when it was first announced, they were overjoyed. Um, Ryan, I have to tell you, they were so excited. They thought that that meant they were getting a direct evac. Um, so on the Friday when it was announced, there was a lot of relief, a lot of excitement. And, you know, I, I think for one day, a lot of us kind of, you know, um, took a took a break, a breather um, from the desperation we were starting to feel uh, when it came to their situation. Because as the situation deteriorated over July, June, and July, you know, we really were starting to feel desperate and heartbroken. And for that one day, there was a, a respite. And then on Saturday, when when the Taliban had surrounded Kabul, there was all of a sudden, you know, that sinking realization that you know this program wasn't necessarily going to help those who were still there. Uh, and, and that's really how this has unfolded since then. So, you know, the, the hope now is that there's there's a pathway for them to be able to transverse to to India and, and apply from there. And there are supports that are now you know becoming available through through community uh, in India to to support them there. But the challenge of getting there um, is still it's still a huge, huge issue. This is I, I mean, you talk about a sense of urgency. I know, you know, there's there's six days, right? Less than a week. And until August 31st, the, the American president, the most the most powerful man in the world is uh, adamantly uh, sticking to that timeline where American troops will withdraw. And, and to point out the obvious, I think they said something, something like 55, 5,700 American troops that will be passing through that Kabul airport uh, in the next number of days. Obviously, it takes days to evacuate uh, that many military personnel, it puts Canada in a difficult position. And of course, it puts everybody else by association in a difficult position, I suppose, including you and your organization and advocates for these people. So where are you at right now as of today? Yeah, it, it, you know, we're we, we're really in a, in a desperate position, um, you know, and, and it really highlights, I think, for a lot of Canadians, of, of you know, the lack of um, you know, in, in terms of our, our position in the world sometimes um, where it, it, it's, it, it really makes us upset that, you know, there are the efforts now, while we applaud a lot of the efforts that are ongoing and, and you know, obviously the Canadian um, military and the soldiers and elite forces that are on the ground are doing a phenomenal job. But, you know, the past six years of advocacy, the past six years of banging on the door um, to try to raise this issue. And the sad part is that back in July of last year, you know, Canadian MPs, uh, we had Canadian MPs for all political parties, you know, the Conservatives, the NDP and the Green Party, they actually wrote to the Minister of uh, Immigration calling for a special program. So this isn't even a, a political issue. You know, this is, um, you know, the Liberals had, um, you know, full party support 
for a special program to assist religious minorities who were in Afghanistan at the time. And that was, you know, that was over a year ago that they had all come, you know, got together on, on, a, on a singular platform to actually say that, you know, we want to make this a priority as Canadian MPs. And I think that's, that's an important consideration when it comes to, um, you know, now where we have efforts that are a little bit, you know, a little bit too late um, to help those who are actually now targeted by Taliban. Because the Taliban has been a threat and a threat to those in Kabul for many, many years. I mean, in 2018, the entire leadership of the second Hindu community was killed in a suicide bombing. Um, you know, they were on a, their way to a meeting with the Afghan president. And, you know, Daesh took responsibility for that attack. You had 15, six and four Hindus. Um, that was the entire leadership of this community wiped out. Um, and that was over three years ago. So, you know, today we're feeling, um, you know, we're feeling very, very desperate. Um, obviously, those who are in Delhi, who are in the process of, of applying, um, we want the Canadian government to, to speed up that process and, and, you know, and help those who are still stuck in, in Kabul uh, find a pathway to actually get evacuated, you know, leaving them to their own, um, you know, their, their own uh, ability to try to transverse across and leave that country, you know, over land is, is going to be treacherous. And, and we're essentially going to end up leaving people behind. And, and that, as, as Canadians, I think is, is a terrible, terrible, um, uh, you know, kind of legacy to leave of our involvement in Afghanistan. Do you think it's hurting your efforts, your organization's efforts? Do you think it's hurting efforts across the country that there's an election campaign underway right now? Do you think it has anything to do with it? You know, that's a really important question. Uh, the prime minister was asked that question and he had responded that absolutely not. But I think that it's a fact and it's reality that, you know, um, your full members of your ministries and your government are not available. Um, so there's limited capacity, you know, so whether that limited capacity is now um, hindering their ability to to, you know, kind of facilitate these types of evacuation. I think it's just a fact that you have limited capacity. So calling an election um, during this type of crisis, I think, you know, from my, our pers- or my perspective personally was was absolutely something that's diminished their ability to address this issue. Um, Tough you know, timing too, Minister's right, Harmon? Like, I mean, the, the election was called and, and, and I recognize that it's it's plotted and planned out weeks in advance, if not months. But the election was called literally the day that Kabul fell to the Taliban. Yeah. I mean, the timing is is bang on. Yeah. And I, I think if you look, you know, for, for us as Canadians, it, you know, I, again, I understand that there's realities of, you know, what, whatever the prime minister had reasons to, to call an election. Sure. You know, uh, our democracy still needs to continue. But at the same time, you know, Afghanistan was, you know, is one of those situations where, you know, in the last 20 years, this is the most prominent military intervention. You know, Canada as a middle power, you know, our intervention in Afghanistan. And that was, you know, that that has been the most significant military intervention that we've undertaken in the past two decades. And you can see the up, complete uprising of Canadians, you know, of former soldiers, of, you know, Afghans, you know, who are, who are taking a stand and saying, you know, this should be our priority over an election. Um, and, and it's been heartwarming to see everyone unite in advocating for peace, but for also in advocating for, for you know, those who are, are looking for a way out and, and looking to, to, to find safe haven. And, and I think, you know, that's the role that Canada wants to play in the world. Um, you know, can we be a massive military power? Perhaps not. But can we be a safe haven for those who are fleeing from persecution and discrimination? Absolutely. And I think that's something that unites a lot of Canadians. And, and what we're seeing is a pushback because, 
it, it, it felt like that the liberals had compromised what was something that unified a lot of us. I'm just reading, you know, comments from people that are that are listening to this live right now, Harmon, uh, including our audience that's watching it. Uh, live on YouTube right now in the comments, you know, Terry says this is unimaginable. Colette just says this is so sad. Nicole says we have an obligation. I mean, you know, despite what political pundits will tell us about why Afghanistan is not spoken about at the doors and why, frankly, it feels cold to say this. I know you'll recognize the context, but people don't care about this kind of stuff. It's not the type of thing that leads people's discussions during a campaign. People are. Many Canadians will want to know what they can do. You're a guy that's doing something to the doers. What would you say? You know, it's one of those things that we need to continue to advocate on behalf of those vulnerable, uh, you know, across the world who are facing discrimination Um, here in Edmonton on the 28th of August to the Saturday um, Afghans are having a rally for peace, um, you know, in Afghanistan um, at the legislature. And I would, you know, recommend and suggest to people who want to show solidarity to attend that event, um, you know, and, and come out and, and really kind of help join the voices uh, for those and, and join the voices for those who are advocating uh, on behalf of, you know, uh, people who are now fleeing um, a terrible situation. And so, you know, there's a lot that we can always do and, and it's, you know, hold hold people accountable. Um, like I said, you know, this is an issue that the Canadian government has known about for many, many years. Um, hold hold uh, hold these governments accountable and ask them those tough questions. That's the way that, we, you know, we can ensure that, you know, moving forward, we don't end up in, in absolute catastrophes like we have today and that are on our hands. Harmon, uh, one of you know one of the promises uh, that we'll make to uh, loyal subscribers and audience members of this show is that we both will and will not be driven by the news cycle. In other words, we'll talk about stuff that's happening right now that people care about, and we'll also be covering things that people might not be talking about, but probably should be. The last time you were on the show, we were talking about the Indian farmers' protest, and I know that it's not leading the headlines right now, but farmers in in parts of India, northern parts of India in particular, have been protesting on highways for in some circumstances like close to a year uh, i know that this has been all over your radar can, can you bring us up to speed on what people in canada need to know right now yeah and so you know last year we kind of that became a, a flashpoint issue um and yeah you know ryan real talk led the way in, in covering this um when it came to you know mainstream outlets and and i i think you know since then nothing has changed you know the farmers are still in the streets of Delhi, you know, a year later. And it's amazing, you know, many have died, um, you know, being being on the streets in their protest and, and they've not given up the fight. Um, so, uh, you know, the harsh update is that they're, they've just continued to advocate, they've continued to protest, they're on the streets, they've tried to escalate their protests at times. Um, There's an evident flow to how protests happen in, in the news cycle. Um, and yet you have this ardent group of uh, farmers in India who've not given up the fight. And like you said, it's been over a year for many of them. And, you know, there's a rotation of, uh, of people. They, you know, some of them go back to the villages and get replaced, but they've maintained those fronts. They've maintained the fronts of protest. And I, it was interesting when it first started, um, I had a lot of uh, colleagues and a lot of um, people that spoke to me that thought, that the farmers would just simply recede or they would go back. And you have to understand, this is a fight for many of them for their livelihoods and their futures. Um, and they feel like it's being undermined by a government that's ignoring their interests at, at the expense of, of corporate interests. Um, you know, and, and I think that you now see, you know, the uprising against what has become 
an authoritarian totalitarian regime and, and that's only going to continue to to occur and you know people people uh, under you know underestimate uh, the the will that many people have and, and it's such an inspiration for so many that you know just because you know you don't get what you want in the in the beginning um you got to continue the fight and, and that's what they've been doing yeah such a good reminder harman thanks so much for for helping us understand i i know that there are so many complexities here i admire your efforts with the world sick organization of canada and of course if people want to learn more about your advocacy uh, you can follow harman and the world sick org uh via the twitter post uh sarah hoyles puts it out every morning right around eight o'clock mountain ten o'clock eastern hey best of luck in your city council run my man it's great to see your face again thanks for doing this i appreciate it right thank you so much yeah you got it that's harman candola uh he's a lawyer uh he's on edmonton's anti-racism advisory committee board and he's vp for the world sick organization of canada for alberta also told you and mentioned that uh he's a member he's a a, a, of our uh, real talk editorial board which uh, if i can give you a little peek behind the curtain real talkers we just had our first meeting last night, and I'm so encouraged at this new development. We'll introduce you to our editorial board in, in the weeks to come, and you'll learn more about the role that they're going to play here when it comes to accountability and direction. And uh, we're really excited to be working with Harmon Candola, uh, with Julie Rohr, with Ann Castleman, uh, Chris Henderson, Sapria Dovetti. Ahmed Ali, Catherine O'Neill, and Corey Hogan, a formidable group, an incredible group of eight, our great eight, so to speak, our Real Talk editorial board. In just a moment, we'll tap into, I know, I mean, this is popping up in political platforms, even the early ones. Uh, the NDs are talking about it, the liberals, the conservatives are talking about it, public spaces, infrastructure. Why is it so important to public health? How does it tie into COVID, the importance of public spaces? What have we learned about public infrastructure? infrastructure over the past 18 months or so isn't it interesting Hoyles when you when you talk about a time frame and then people kind of know exactly what you're talking about that's when you know it's been a moment in history if you say to someone boy it's been a a hell of a last few days then people kind of go oh he's talking about this if you right now it seems to be that 18 month buffer if we talk about something that over the past 18 months everyone just associates it with COVID I wonder how we'll continue to look back on that 10 15 20 years from now how we'll refer to that period of time Absolutely. I'm also curious to see what happens on, you know, television shows and in movies. How is this reflected? Because I've noticed that, you know, some new shows have dropped on Netflix. I might have done some, you know, chilling and uh, and none of them are actually reflecting the pandemic. And I'm like, hello, (laughs) this is our new reality. Masks are not going anywhere. In my world, masks are not going anywhere. Yeah, well, and, and, and in your world or in a lot of people's worlds, maybe as, as, as we've mentioned, these indoor mask mandates are popping back up in, remind me, BC and Manitoba and, Quebec, and Quebec's talking about it. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. And, and then I think the thing that really top of people's list is passports. So yeah. That, and that is in Quebec and BC. Yeah. Uh, John Horgan. Yeah. Pretty unapologetic about that. He the premier of BC says, I know there's going to be some bumps along the way with this, but this is the way it's got to be right now. And uh, of course, many implications. We're going to be talking about that as part of our ongoing discussions. Why don't we, why don't we take a break from it all? For a second, anybody want to head out to the mountains with me? Yes, please. It's Wednesday, which means that, you know, we, of course, are so proud to partner up with our friends at Tourism Jasper. This is a weekly feature here on the show. We call it My Jasper Memories. It's an opportunity to get out to, in my mind, the most beautiful part of the entire country. And today we're going to highlight one of my most favorite spots. I've been here first thing in the morning and I've been here so late at night that it's almost first thing in the morning again. Talking about Moline Canyon. 
with its steep 55 meter sides, like almost 170 feet straight up, multiple waterfalls. I can almost feel that kind of water vapor, the droplets, year round accessibility. I highly recommend winter tours through Moline Canyon, but of course the summer equally as stunning. It's a geological wonder and a must see within Jasper National Park, but it also has a secret, which I didn't actually even know until two days ago. The water that courses through Moline Canyon arrives via an underground cave system all the way from Medicine Lake. You're going, hang on a second. Locals are going, Medicine Lake is like 14 kilometers away. Uh Uh-huh. So how do we know how long it takes for the water to get there? Well, scientists have used red dye in the water And they've been able to determine that the journey takes 12 to 24 hours in the summer for this water to make its way, those 14 kilometers, five to nine days in the winter when it continues to move. Now, the canyon got its start about 365 million years ago. It was a shallow tropical sea that covered the area at the time, an ancient plankton make up the Devonian limestone that Moline Canyon is carved from. This stuff just blows my mind. But unlike most water carved features, Moline is actually narrower at the top, as you can see there, than it is partway down. To those listening in on the podcast, just imagine what appears to be standing inside an Egyptian pyramid with a hole cut at the top. Fascinating stuff, leading some geologists to theorize that the canyon used to be a cave that had its ceiling actually sheared off by glaciers. How cool is that? So here's the deal. The waterfall that runs through the canyon only is going to it's only going to run for another. I, again, I, I, I hate to remind you of this, friends, but winter is coming. That's when we get to talk about snowboarding and skiing and ice climbing and all the other cool stuff. But if you want to hear that waterfall and see it run through the canyon, you've got till about December. Come winter, most of it will drain away or freeze. And then that's when you can get those crampons on and walk the frozen bottom of the canyon floor to see the natural ice sculptures. Or if you're. I mean, if you're, I, I just, I get my hands start sweating if I start talking about ice climbing. It's not my thing, but maybe, maybe you're wired that way. You can always learn more at jasper.travel slash real talk. You can catch up on past episodes, past features, learn so much more about this national park that we love so very much. We also invite you to share your Jasper memories. Just use the hashtag my Jasper and the hashtag real talk RJ. I love that Audrey did this for us. Check these photos out, these family photos. These are absolutely stunning. This was following our last, our, our most recent My Jasper Memories. This is from Audrey. Look at these family photos. You got Spirit Island, an unbelievable hike. Look at the kids getting set to play a little bit of shinny. This is absolutely beautiful stuff. This is what it's all about. Quality family time. Quality alone time sometimes. Huh? How good does that sound? The hashtag MyJasper, the hashtag RealTalkRJ. And again, you can learn more at jasper.travel slash realtalk. Palaces for the People. It's a book uh, by noted speaker and author Eric Kleinenberg. He's a professor of sociology director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University and our guest this morning. Eric, thanks so much for making time for us and welcome to Real Talk. Hey, thanks. It's it's good to be here. I'm actually speaking to you from Chicago, but looking ah. at those photographs, I'm I'm wondering if I can get into Canada these days. I'm ready to come to one of those parks. <laughs> yeah, we'd love Please. to have we'd love to have you here. Let me, Although, in. Let me say, Chicago, am I allowed? Am yeah, I allowed yeah. in? I, you know what? I have a hard time 
keeping up to speed on who's allowed and when and what, but I do know that there are many Canadians that, that are eager to see the border open up so we can see more travel uh, both ways with our American neighbors. That city of Chicago is something special. You, you get People always say, it, my wife took me there for my 40th birthday and everybody was saying, you, you, know, you walk around in Chicago and everybody says, it's so much better than New York. You're a bit of an authority on both cities, I guess. <laughs> So I've, I've voted with my feet in the sense that I live in New York City right now. Yeah. Uh, but it, it always feels great to come to my native home, Chicago. Ah. And I put on a few pounds eating pizza just in the last 24 hours. So, oh, my gosh. The restaurants. Uh, the pleasure and the peril of being here. Yeah. The restaurants in Chicago are something special, to be sure. Hey, Eric, you know, the, the title of your book, Palaces for the People. I love it because it's it's uh, it's somewhat self-explanatory, but it, it's somewhat ambiguous. It, I even find it to be a little bit tongue in cheek. What's what's the jumping off point? of the premise of the book what prompted you to write it so it's a book about what i call social infrastructure uh a concept we should all be talking about as we make historic investments in infrastructure you know trillions of dollars around the world uh, to rebuild uh, the systems that make modern life possible and um the palace for the people concept actually comes from this guy andrew carnegie uh and you probably know him there because he helped to build your central public library and uh, as he did in, in you know, thousands of places around the world, he built, you know, helped to build more than 2,500 public libraries. And Carnegie, you know, as historians have noted, has kind of a mixed record when it comes to human decency. Uh, he wasn't great for his workers, for instance, but he was a great philanthropist. And he, had a, he was an immigrant to the United States from Scotland. And he believed in this idea that the public library was this rare and special place uh, that could lift people up and give them an opportunity to make more of themselves in the world. And he thought, you know, in modern life, when you're working all the time and you're busy, there's just not a lot of places that welcome you in, that dignify you, you know, give you a, a feeling of possibility and elevate your ceiling. And literally, that's what, you know, the classic Carnegie buildings, they have high ceilings if you're in them. You, you walk up some stairs, it, they're about creating possibilities. And so the metaphor of this book, Palaces for the People, is that in the, you know, in the last several decades, uh, we have uh, created an economy and a society where a small number of people have gotten extraordinarily wealthy uh, uh, and they have got palaces, but we haven't really done much to lift up the majority of us. Uh, and we need to invest in ourselves. And so the book kind of outlines a, a blueprint for how to do that. I'll give you a little bit of context. And, and I'll know I know that you're coming. Uh, you've got this online fundraiser that you're bringing your support to on, on September 9th. People can learn more at EPL.ca, uh, a fundraiser for the Edmonton Public Library. There was a pretty high profile renovation of the big downtown library. I won't yeah. get into to, to the architecture around it because it's quite divisive, as a matter of fact. But sometimes the great buildings are. Uh, but there yeah. was a big investment, Always. you know, with 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 Edmonton's downtown library. Our, our, our city just south of us, another big city, got a lot of audience members down in Calgary, a stunningly beautiful library down there. And we see uh, jurisdictions and, and governments and societies investing hundreds of millions of dollars to build these libraries. Now, I'm not saying I subscribe to this theory. And as a matter of fact, I don't hear it as often as I used to. But when we started seeing tablets or, or more access to, to information online, some people were questioning the value of continuing to invest in libraries, I think, because there was this understanding that library equals book. You talk about dignity. Yeah. You talk about opportunity. You talk about potential. I guess what I'm saying is that libraries continue to establish themselves as so much more than just the books on the shelf. 
I mean, if you haven't been to a, a great public library the last few years, uh, if they're if they're open, you know where where you are, and they're not open everywhere yet, but they they're they're getting opened. Um, please go visit a library. They are about so much more than the book. Um, you can still get all kinds of books there, and you can get them in any you know form you want, whether it's a hardcover book or a, an ebook. Uh, but the the contemporary library is is a different place than the one a hundred years ago. And it has evolved, uh, not just technologically in the sense that they have a digital uh, collection, but in terms of its social value, libraries are doing you know, more English as a second language than any other institution in the United States. They're doing programming for young children for literacy, uh, for older adults who live alone and are at risk for loneliness, uh, for people who are looking for a job, uh, for people who want to be involved in uh, civic affairs. Here in the United States, they played a pivotal role in getting people uh, to register for the census and to vote. They, are, they stand, for me, the library stands for the best in our society. It's democratic. It's open. It's open to everyone, no matter how much money you make, no matter what your race or ethnicity is, no matter how old you are, what your abilities are. Uh, and, you know, it's free. Uh, it's, it's open to everyone, uh, even regardless of citizenship status. And if you think about it, there just are not that many institutions uh, in our contemporary world uh, that are like that. So the, the book I wrote is about, you know, it's not just about the library. It's right. about our parks. It's about our school systems. Uh, it's about uh, community gardens, transit very, very much because a, a public transit uh, system is a kind of social infrastructure. I would say, you know, as a New Yorker now, one way you learn how to live with a lot of people in a dense environment, people who are different from you, uh, is by taking a public transit system. Uh, there are all kinds of codes of civility you know, that we, we sometimes talk about the incivility that you occasionally rarely observe in a public transit system, but mainly a public transit system is about learning how to live together. Um, just as a library, you know, the, one of the amazing things about a library is when you get that first library card, and I talked to so many people who remember getting their first library card because it's the moment where you realize, you know, boy, if, if I take out a book, uh, you know, if I don't return it, then somebody else in my community is not going to have a chance to take out that book themselves. And if, if my neighbors don't return a book that I want to read, then I'm not going to get, get, get a chance for it. So you get the, the library card. It recognizes you as an individual, as a citizen, as a, a citizen of society. And you start to think about your role in something that's bigger than yourself and your family. You see your relationship to others. What a great way for us all to learn the basics of, uh, you know, living in a democratic culture. And boy, we really need to learn those basics right now because uh, I don't know what, how you're feeling about things in Canada, but here in the United States, it really feels like our whole democratic experiment is teetering on the edge of failure. Hmm. Well, I mean, you know, we're we're right in the middle of a, a federal election campaign right now. So September 20th, you know, Canadians will vote. I, I suppose they'll assess the performance of of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And we're spending a lot of time talking about this, including taking a look at platforms and these platforms from, you know, three parties, I'd say, that have got a shot in varying degrees are, are talking about billions or even trillions of dollars into public spaces. Uh, I haven't seen a lot about parks 
Uh, but I'm sure seeing a lot about infrastructure. I'm sure seeing a lot about transit. I mean, that's how governments obviously can, I think, win favor from people. It seems to me more suburban voters that are interested in that. Maybe, maybe I'm glossing that over. And of course, I'm talking to somebody in New York with one of the most robust public transit systems in the entire world. So your perception of it will be different. But it brings me to the question, Eric, how does a voter or how does a citizen, let's not say a voter, how does a citizen determine amid all of the noise of election promises and all the zeros behind all the numbers, what is good when it comes to a public space for a community? What, what are the factors to consider? Well, you know, first of all, I'm glad you're bringing this up because when we debate infrastructure in the policy uh, world, it's important for us to recognize that it's not just this kind of classic traditional infrastructure like rail systems and uh, communication grids and power lines, things like that. It's also social infrastructure mm -hmm. that's on the line, right? The, our libraries, uh, our parks, uh, our open spaces, that's, that's very much part of the conversation when it comes to infrastructure. And, and you know, we're really admired in that debate here in the U.S. and I think we, we need to be. Um, the principles for me for a good public space, uh, they need to be open. They need to be accessible. Uh, to everyone. Uh, you know, there should be no VIP section of your public space if you want it to be a, a, a democratic and equalizing space, uh, obviously, although that, that unfortunately needs to be said, at least here in the United States. Um, a special public space is a place that, that, uh, that dignifies the people who come into it. If it's designed well, uh, you feel that as a, as a user, as a visitor, uh, a participant in that space. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, as I said before, and Chicago had built all these amazing public spaces in the decades before I was born, but we went into this moment of austerity uh, in the 70s and 80s. So when I was a kid, we had these beautifully designed public spaces that had fallen apart mm -hmm. uh, because we didn't invest in maintaining them. So an unspoken thing about public spaces is that they need to be maintained. Uh, and the best public spaces, like libraries, are programmed. Uh, they have people like librarians or like, uh, you know, park workers uh, who create activities, uh, who organize, uh, you know, events and programs. Uh, so sometimes just the physical design of a place uh, can build programming into it. So, you know, a children's room of a library is programmed to do something different uh, than a room that's got periodicals, uh, than a room that's got computers. Uh, but you can also do explicit programming, like in uh, the, the uh, Palaces for the People book, I write about this uh, library lanes virtual bowling league uh, for older patrons where, you know, every week in New York City, uh, people over 65 years old gather together and they have... Uh, uh, TVs hooked up to Xboxes, and they literally compete uh, in these virtual bowling matches. And it provides some camaraderie and some sense of community and physical activity for people who otherwise, you know, at risk are at risk of being home and alone and isolated. And so there's all kinds of things that you can do uh, with a public space. And 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 I guess what I would argue is that uh, you know, public space done well. Uh, gives us a chance to live up to our, our cultural and our democratic ideals. Um, and you know what doesn't? Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> we just talked to a, a, a pretty popular political columnist before we spoke with you, Paul Wells, about his departure from Twitter. And yeah. I, I, I could relate to, you know, he, he says I'm much more nasty to people when I respond on yeah. Twitter than in person. I thought, yeah, me too. The only difference between the two of us is I'm still there being nasty to people. So it just it, it, it lacks that face to face connection. I mean, you, you alluded to it earlier. 
when you talk about walking into a public library, you kind of caught yourself and you said, well, maybe they're not all open right now. I mean, we're all yeah. we've all been living under this influence of this pandemic yeah. for, you know, what feels like two years or maybe even longer now. What, what have we learned about mm. public spaces, whether it's whether it's I mean, gosh, we could approach this from so many angles. Couldn't we mask mandates on public transit or the use of public or the importance of shelters? Or What have we learned in the big context of public spaces and investment in them and community implications? from COVID-19? So, so I think the first thing we've learned is that we've taken them for granted. Uh, we, we need them and we miss them when we can't use them. Uh, as much as it can be nice to work from home, uh, I think everyone is sick of their uh, living room at this point. Uh, we love our family members, but we would like a little bit of a release. We, you know, we like to be in each other's company. Um, we are social animals. Uh, even those of us who like solitude uh, really uh, appreciate the value of, of being with people, including strangers. Uh, there's a great sociological concept uh, from the French uh, sociologist Emile Durkheim called collective effervescence. I love this phrase, collective effervescence. It refers to the experience that we have of being together and sharing something that feels, you know, special. Like when you're at a great concert, or when you're in a park on a, you know, with other people on a beautiful day, uh, or a live sports event, and something terrific happens, like you know, Canada beats the United States or wins the gold medal in women's soccer. Not that I saw or sore about either one of those things. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, you know, but but when you when you have that shared experience with other people. Uh, it's transcendent, you know, it, 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 it takes you to some other place. And I think, you know, no, no matter how much we uh, have enjoyed not having to commute, uh, you know, being able to wear shorts all day, uh, we really miss the experience of being with other people uh, in, in the public realm. And we've had doses of it, you know, we've been able to, those of us who've had access to outdoor, you know, parks or outdoor eating places have had doses of it. Uh, but I think what we've learned in the pandemic um, is that these public spaces are much more valuable uh, than even the, their biggest boosters understood. Uh, they are just a, a core part of, you know, of, of who we are. Uh, and I personally, you know, I, I can't wait for this to be over for a million reasons, but one is just, uh, you know, I, I'd like to be with strangers who, uh, who are different uh, and who I might not otherwise spend time with, uh, but, but, you know, with whom collectively, uh, I can experience things that are richer and deeper and greater than what I can experience, you know, home with my screen. I, I mean, I feel like you're you're describing the library experience right now, but you're also describing the public transit experience at the same time and, and so many others. Um, really appreciate your perspective on this, Eric. We do have one last question here from Scott. Uh, probably the toughest question you'll face. He says, uh, New York or Chicago deep dish pizza? Which one is it? I, I mean, there's nothing like a Chicago deep dish pizza. That said, I think if you go for more than one a year, uh, <laughs> you, you know, the only person who's doing well in that situation is your cardiologist. Yeah, that's uh, fair. So I'm, I'm going to end. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with New York just for sheer sustainability. I like that. I tried. There's there's a new joint. There's a new joint in our town. It's Detroit deep dish. So that that's yeah, that's, that's a whole other wheelhouse. Michigan trying to force its way into the debate. Uh, Professor Eric Kleinenberg out at New York University, director of the Institute for Public Knowledge, will be outlining way more from his book Palaces 
for the people on Thursday, September 9th, a special online fundraiser uh, for the public library in our hometown, the Edmonton Public Library. 100% of the funds raised will go to Ready, Set, Read that delivers age-appropriate books to kids' homes monthly from birth to five years of age as if we need to reiterate maybe we will anyway how important those developmental years are tickets are five dollars and fifty cents they're available now at epl.ca eric thanks so much for this it's been nice to talk to you really appreciate it good luck to you take care thanks yeah i don't know chicago new york that's a time i mean I, I know that there's a lot of other things we could talk about here but but scott bring in the heat i don't know i don't know I mean, can I say both? <laughs> That's mine. Well, it's like my vote is both. Yeah, you can't compare. You like the little, like yeah. the, the pizza, the like the little, like the skinny, skinny little New York style pizza, or the deep dish. And why does why does Scott need to be so divisive? Right. You know, tr- forcing us to make a choice, Scott. Seriously, you know, the team at Westworld Computers has kicked off their Back to the Future school and work sale, and you can learn more about it at Westworld.ca. When you buy a new Mac with Apple Care Plus at Westworld, they're going to give you up to a hundred dollars to spend on. Whatever accessories, you know, it's pretty awesome accessories there you can choose from. Or if you're looking for a new iPad Pro, like the one I have in front of me with Apple Care Plus, uh, you're going to receive $50 instant savings right there on accessories. And of course, don't forget, if you want to knock down that price a little bit, you can trade in your current Mac, your current iPad. And when you do that, when you recycle or trade in your well-loved Apple product at Westworld, no matter the age At the very least, they're going to transfer your data for free. So you don't have to go through that process wondering if you're doing it right. They'll ensure that your personal information from your old device is securely removed. So you won't have a second thought about that. You can learn more at westworld.ca. Also want to remind you that you've got one week left to support the initiative spearheaded by our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, where every child matters and every cone counts. They sent us an email, said as the devastation of residential schools continues to unfold, we felt a need to educate ourselves. And so we reached out to our friends at the Wakutuin Society. And that's why for the entire month of August, a dollar from every ice cream cone sold at the Dairy Queens and Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road will go to the Wakutuin Society where they provide retreats for women who have survived both residential schools and cancer you can learn more about them online and of course we encourage you to go support our friends at dairy queen wanted to remind you that we're off air friday and next week which means that tomorrow is your last chance for a while to get in your edition most recent edition of trash talk presented by local waste services you can send your email your gripe your rant to talk at ryanjesperson.com at Local Waste, and you can learn more at localwaste.ca. They work with partners across Western Canada, including Alberta and Saskatchewan, creating personal relationships. It's a family-owned business. They've been doing waste and recycling removal for a quarter century now, earning the trust and the return business of their partners. Mikkel, Lauren, Chris, they want you to call them by their first names. Would love to take your call today. You can find everything on their website under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Well, this is a hell of a show, quite frankly. Uh, if you pay any attention to Canadian media, we don't have to introduce you to at least two of our guests. Number one, Paul Wells out of the gates, and now a 10 
time Gemini Award winner, winner of the 2009 Giller Prize for his book, The Bishop's Man, a longtime contributor uh, to, in my mind, an iconic program, The Fifth Estate. And of course, he's got a brand new book out already, a national bestseller, The Winter Wives. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show, Lyndon McIntyre. Thanks. And hey, your Real Talk debut. This is exciting for me. I hope it is for you, too. It's good to see your face. Nice to be here, Ryan. You're uh, certainly in an interesting position, Lyndon, as as somebody who's uh, covered. I mean, you you've been, you were a parliamentary correspondent uh, for a good number of years in Ottawa. Of course, your long form journalism career is familiar to virtually every Canadian. But but you're also a fiction writer, and you don't always find mm-hmm. people that can pull that off. Were you always wired that way? I I grew up in a storytelling culture, (laughs) and a story is a story, whether it's uh, in a magazine or a newspaper or on TV or in a book, and and that was how that's how I approached stuff. I mean, it's it's a case of trying to uh, reveal something important about how we live and who we are, and uh, and you do it with uh, attention to detail, attempt to be accurate. the elusive quality of truth is something that you strive for, but anyone who claims that they ever actually achieve it in an absolute way is making stuff up. Uh, so, yeah, so it's all been storytelling, Ryan. I think we may have a, a quick freeze, but that's OK. We can work around it and we'll get Lyndon back. Sam will work too. There you are. We've got you back, my man. Do you I mean, I would imagine, you know, dis- despite the fact that and, and, and I want to talk to you in a bit about your your piece published in 2020 about a civil war erupting over the soul of the CBC and the circumstances of your departure there. You, you, you caught a lot of young journalists attention when, when you essentially said we need to make way for the next wave of talent which was really remarkable but but does the journalist in you ever go away i mean are you paying as keen attention right now to this these federal election campaigns as, as you would have been had you been filing stories every day i think so um unfortunately not as as bound up in in the process and and in the mechanics of it as as i might be if i was a still working journalist but i can't i i can't escape the fascination with with what goes on and and the importance of it, uh, which is undeniable. Um, I, I'm, I like I'm at that point in 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 a long life that where I I get a little bit uh, a, a little bit distracted by how the world has changed in in my experience and how different everything is, particularly politics and particularly uh, you were talking before about social media and the impact of that and the reality of that in, in the world. And uh, I don't miss the the kind of, uh, I think, counterproductive urgency that that now drives an, an awful lot of journalism because of the, the overwhelming uh, presence of of the of the internet and of the of the various uh, social media platforms and uh, and the overwhelming presence of, of the public who, as again, you've, you've, you've sort of touched on this before, is uh, the, the, the instantaneous response to either events or to what people say about events is not always helpful to the, uh, to the, to the conversation that everybody likes to talk about nowadays, but to, to, the, to the dialogue or, or, or just the consideration of the things we have to be very serious about. I wonder if, I mean, you, you talk about urgency, 
And uh, that word, when when you dropped that word, it really resonated with me because if, if you talk to any new media or digital media consultant, they'll tell you content, 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 right? If you want to build your brand or if you want to expand, expand your platform, there's always got to be content and it's exhausting. You're hitting all the, all the words that really drive me kind of crazy, you know, content, which is a, a euphemism for uh, information. Uh, in from, uh, for quality uh, journalism. Uh, I think that the people who manage uh, technology and systems have, have just sort of dismissed the, 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 the purpose of, of, of these systems, which is to inform people. And, and it's, the use of words like content and branding, it, it, they're quite dismissive of the serious nature of, of what we were supposed to be doing and what we are supposed to be doing in, in the business of journalism nowadays. In fact, reporting and commentary and and the kind of of, of interchange of people's uh, viewpoints that you have uh, that you're engaged in which, which is really not a very new phenomenon we've had talk radio and talk TV we've had panel shows for for a long long time and I, and I think they're absolutely an essential and valid part of the process uh, where, where I get uh, kind of left out is, is the sniping uh, the, the anonymous sniping, the uh, sniping from safe places uh, where you don't even have to provide your real identity. And, and it's, I find that I've noticed this as a car driver. You're, you're a lot braver and more, you know, more uh, uh, passionate when you're wrapped up in an automobile and you're, you wave your fist, you, you point the finger, you swear. Whereas you're standing in a line in a grocery store and, and somebody annoys you. Uh, you say, oh, sorry, <laughs> you say, excuse me, uh, you don't treat people in real, in the real world the way you seem to treat them in this technological hot room that, that everybody likes to, to play in. So uh, all, all these are things that, that kind of combine to make me happy to be able to sit back and reflect uh, in, in an old-fashioned kind of a way on, on what's going on in the world and how people react to what's going on in the world. And, and in that process, to uh, extract from my own memory and my own experience, a lot of material that, that, as we say, got left on the cutting room floor, got edited out with a red pencil, but, but were all important parts of my experience of being present at an event or present in the life of someone who has a problem. People always seem to have the problems when we show up. We don't go to celebrate. We go to, like, find out what the hell is wrong. And so uh, you leave, after a long time in journalism, you realize an awful lot of what you know, an awful lot of what you experienced, just never got communicated. And, uh, and you find yourself, I used to notice when I was sort of young and, and uh, more, more social, you sit around a lot in bars and, and, and places uh, telling war stories to one another. And I realized one day it's kind of like the, the vets in the Legion. You know, they're telling war stories, but it's a, it's a therapeutic process. They are shaking out of their memories, shaking out this, the experiences they had that, that were really important to them, but not necessarily important to, be, to, to the story that they were trying to tell. So through, the, through the, the medium of storytelling that I've been engaged in for some time now, uh, which is fiction and, and, and nonfiction books, uh, I get a chance to, to, as they like to say, repurpose a lot of experience and to process a lot of experience, uh, which 
I believe is a little bit is kind of therapeutic because if you if you just stew about the things you saw, the things you heard, the things that really uh, affected you, uh, it begins to have bad chemical effects on yourself. And uh, so it's kind of healthy, I think, to find a storytelling place and to tell the stories that you never got to tell before to to describe the characters, even if it's in a fictional kind of representation that you got to know, that you got to care about, and then you had to walk away from and leave behind in whatever predicament they were in. And you can revisit that, I think, through a novel or through a book uh, or, or, or through some long form that isn't particularly popular nowadays in, 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 the, in the mainstream media, but, but I think it's very important to, uh, to the people who read and the people who listen and view and think. What's well, uh, your uh, uh, publisher was kind enough to send us an advanced copy of, of the Winter Wives. And it's, it's you're one of the very few authors that uh, and I think this is based on my uh, my years of enjoying your your work on the Fifth Estate is I read the book in your voice. I hear the I hear it in my head. I hear you reading it to me um, and it says something. And I want to get into those pages with you in, in just a second. But it goes to, it, it went to show to me. And I had this this thought occurred to me that that when Lyndon McIntyre speaks or tells a story, people are going to listen. Um, and, and when Lyndon McIntyre talks about the CBC, for example, Canada's national broadcaster or public broadcaster, people are going to listen. And you wrote a piece uh, just in December uh, in the Globe and Mail that I know got a lot of people talking where you, you talked about how a civil war is erupting over the soul of the CBC. And I thought it was particularly interesting timing to have you joining us here on the show right now, because, you know, depending on which pundit you talk to, Aaron O'Toole has the potential to potentially unseat Justin Trudeau as prime minister. We'll see what happens. But a big part of Aaron O'Toole's leadership run in securing the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada was a promise to defund the CBC. And it doesn't oftentimes become a huge talking point on the campaign trails. And, and typically, party leaders don't spend a lot of time talking about it unless they're trying to win their grassroots members over, typically on the conservative side. But but you've taken issue with, with what might be a move in the other direction, which is a different source of funding or revenue for the CBC. What's your assessment of Canada's public broadcaster today well i think that uh you know we've heard this before the defend defund and 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 demolish the, the cbc the, the harper uh conservatives uh had that on their on their agenda for you know even before they became the government of canada and and the cbc just muddled along through all those years and you know, uh, there was there was a kind of a, na- a naive notion that trudeau was going to bring it back into the center uh, of Canadian cultural policy. He pumped a pile of money into it, uh, but uh, the, the, I don't think the corporation is in any better shape today than it was in, in uh, 2015. And, uh, and I think that uh, some of the things that are happening there are symptomatic of extremely worrisome uh, thinking in the corporation. And the particular item that, that you referred to is an item that I wrote in response to a, a very serious debate within the CBC about a decision in, in senior management to begin to sort of make deals with advertisers that would enable advertisers to uh, determine content uh, uh, that, that goes out on, online and in some cases on the radio. And, uh, and the perception inside, and my perception, is that this is a very slippery slope in a direction that, that will 
uh, either it, it will undermine the credibility of, of public sector journalism. Now, you can hate the CBC or you can love the CBC, but the CBC has for many, many years been a highly reliable, credible source of information. And, uh, and whether the information was just straight news or it was long-form uh, uh, explanation of things, uh, CBC for many, many years was always present on the world scene to give a Canadian uh, uh, take, Canadian impression of, of what was going on. Um, but the, the, the allocation of public money that goes into the CBC has become highly contentious, especially within the corporation. We don't know, or we, I'm not there anymore, but I, I'm still in touch. Uh, what do they do with it? I know it is a huge, uh, a, a huge enterprise all over one of the largest land masses in the planet with a mandate to provide service to everybody in that landmass. I do believe that we could be doing a heck of a lot better job of that without actually selling the soul of the corporation to the private sector people who provide a significant part of the funding. And, and to, to make sure that the people who run the corporation uh, get a better value from the very large public contribution to the corporation. It, it seems to me that the rigor required for that, those kinds of choices just doesn't exist there. There exists largely a, an invent, a, a sort of a commitment to invent ways to get their hands on more money. Well, everybody wants more money for one thing or another, but I believe that before the CBC either uh, turns to uh, what I would even consider nefarious ways of raising money, uh, they would take very hard look, a very hard look at, at, at what they're doing with the money they have and what the priorities are, and, and how well the public is being served by the spending of public money and, and the money that comes from the private sector. Uh, these are questions that, that, the, that the, the people who are accountable for the running of the CBC uh, are, are avoiding, and they don't even want to discuss with people at the CBC, except in a paternalistic way. Hmm. So uh, hmm. it's not surprising that there's a kind of, there is a very passionate, and I've been around there a lot. I was at the CBC for 38 years, and I've seen uprisings and I've seen passion at times, but I've never seen anything quite as principled and as, as visceral as, as, as the reaction to this, this proposal that, that you, you sort of cut special deals with, with, with big advertisers and you give the big advertisers a voice in, in what is going to go out on the platform. And, uh, and that has never been done. I worked for newspapers in the old days, and it was always a sort of a, a, a wall between the business side of the operation and the editorial side of the operation. And what we see it, it, it happening with this new CBC proposal is the crumbling of that wall and the, break, the breaking down of the, the separation of what we would call church and state. And, uh, and, and that's perilous not just in a very real way, but certainly parallels in the optics. And of course, credibility is based to a large extent on optics as well as concrete uh, reality. So I believe that the people who are coming up with this plan, they are endangering the credibility of the CBC. Hmm. And I believe it's the credibility of the CBC that will continue to justify the large public transfer of, of uh, resources to the CBC, undermine the will to go to the wall for the CBC. Um, 
I, mean, I, I would caution Aaron O'Toole or anybody else who thinks we usually happily defund the CBC and make a, a conservative base happy. Uh, but, but you have to realize that the CBC is, is most uh, relevant in the smaller places, in the remote places. Yeah, Toronto is not going to sort of crumble culturally if the CBC ceases to exist. Uh, Fort St. John, British Columbia might have, might find that they're missing out on something. None of none of Northwest Territory, Atlantic Canada, where I am now, uh, is, is 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 heavily into the CBC as a as you know as a public sector service. And if you take that service away, it ain't going to come back. And and a lot of people ain't going to be very happy to see it go, and they're 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 going to start asking some hard questions of a the people that put the corporation in a position where it was vulnerable to political manipulation, and they're going to be they're going to ask some real hard questions of the politicians who actually take advantage of a weak organism to uh, put it out of its misery or to shove it into irrelevance. This is a, this is a tricky political problem. And, and it's going to get trickier, trickier and trickier as, as people begin to realize that the future of, a, of an institution that has been vital to, to the Canadian uh, public life uh, for decades, many, many decades, is, is in very serious existential danger. And it is the sort of institution that once it is gone, it will not be possible to bring it back in anywhere any way near the, the presence that it once had in our political life, our cultural life, and uh, just our, uh, you know, as, as a part of our communal experience as Canadians. If you're streaming us live on the Mixler Audio app right now, just tuning in, we're talking to legendary journalist and author Lyndon McIntyre, his new book, The Winter Wives, out August 10th, already a national bestseller. Lyndon, we've got a bunch of people that are that are tuning in live right now. Of course, many will hear the podcast later. Uh, Scott says, I used to think the CBC shouldn't play a role in our lives, but I've absolutely changed my mind after seeing corporate media out of the United States. He says, I now recognize the importance of the CBC Tony says that was the downfall of journalism when it went to a for-profit model and not objective news delivery. I feel like, I mean, this is such a loaded question. I feel like you and I could probably talk for an hour on the importance of the CBC solely in the context of truth and reconciliation. I mean, I think that's one example of a million we could address. You, you and I in different stages of our careers, but but I've been in it long enough, kind of up on almost 20 years ago right now. I mean, I remember I started... I had the same first job as one of your former colleagues, Ron McLean. We were we were both we were both at at, at uh, Big One Hundred Five now, a Patterson Station in Red Deer. I digress, but if I if I take a look, even at Red Deer as a model, what's happened there in print, what's happened in radio, RDTV, the television station is gone. I mean, one you just said it. Once they're gone, they're gone. I know that you've reflected upon and, and you've walked the walk, uh, reflecting the importance of of the next wave of journalists or the next talent. When, when Tony writes in and says that was the downfall of journalism, I'm inclined to push back because this in a way, what we're talking about right now perpetuates it in a new context on a new platform on an exciting new revenue model for us. A lot of what we do is crowdfunded. Do you still have faith in, in the institution? I mean, are you, are you, are you waving red flags? Where are you at? Well, I'm, I'm taking the, you know, if I didn't care, I wouldn't be bothered talking about it. Mm. And one of the things I care about is is this 
question of the of the new generation of journalists. Um, yeah, we we can. One of the areas where you know you you cannot really fault the young generation of serious people who want to become journalists is is in their qualification to be re, to be journalists. Uh, before I left, and one of the things that really caused a great deal of dismay when I was leaving was the the vulnerability of really talented young folks. Uh, when I compare wh what I was to what they are and at the beginning of my career, they speak languages, they, they, they understand technology, they care about the world in, in brave ways. They're prepared to risk themselves and, and to work for practically nothing uh, just to, because there's something in their consciousness that, that, that drives a sense of the importance of communication and of public sector journalism. Private sector journalists, absolutely. I mean, there would be, you know, it would be a, a pretty empty, uh, empty uh, auditorium if, if it wasn't for that. But you have to have a public sector presence because, you know, it, it's a cliche that the, we are dealing with, with a public uh, sector asset, which is the airwaves and, and, and just the general flow of information. So if, if that disappears... And, and it, it was amazing to me the number of people who actually got that when I was there. And, and, and the fact that they were just young, they were the last people on board the bus, it, it made them likely to be the first people off the bus. And, and I just, I thought that was wrong. The, the fact that, that we start to lose the talent uh, before they get the experience. I, I said at one point, I said, um, I got a lot going for me. You know, because I've been in journalism for a very long period of time, a lot of experience and all the stuff that comes along with that. But the one thing I, <laughs> I don't have anymore is potential. I don't have the potential to become anything more than I am. And there's a whole generation of people in our profession right now, Ryan, who, who not only have a lot of what we have based on our experience and just being out there, but they also have the potential to become so much more. And when you cut them off at the knees before they get a chance to get, you know, the, the number of people that will work as temps, uh, work for little or nothing on short-term contracts, just can't barely pay the rent, and they're still prepared to show up and uh, and put in a day's work as reporters, uh, you know, I I just have to take my hat off and and say I wish people understood that 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 kind of a spirit and commitment is out there, and that people would would really work with it to to give it a, a better and, and and lasting place in this in this whole media landscape yeah. because this is where yeah. i see the death i mean i think you, you your your listeners have maybe alluded to this you start losing out on that young generation if they become discouraged uh, an awful lot of these bright young people that i see coming in that want to be reporters they work as temps for a while they have short-term contracts and then they branch off into something else some form of communications but it's not it's not the, the kind of independent journalistic uh, jobs that they really yearned for. This is, this is the big threat. I mean, the, the whole newspaper thing is a whole other program, but uh, the collapse of community newspapers across this country is, and, or, the, or the destruction of them is, is a national scandal. And uh, I don't know what we do about that. It's, that horse is out of the barn and gone. 
about yeah, Lyndon, I, let me let me ask you about that because that was a really I mean politically, and that was the mandate of you know I, I remember an email that I received from from the president of Chorus Entertainment. All of us did, all the hosts did at my previous job on Terrestrial Radio, and it was right after it was vice president of news programming. Pardon me, but it was right after the the, the Trudeau government had announced that six hundred million dollar fund to support media, yeah. and and it was a it, it was literally a written phrase that we were to read anytime anybody asked us about it to reiterate in the strongest possible terms that we were not receiving a cent of that because it created i think real optical problems for broadcasters and for media outlets the endeavor of that ultimately i'm not defending it i'm simply detailing it was to support these smaller town independent or smaller owned outlets like like you describe i I don't know if you believe that that is the federal government's job or not i mean is it private industry is it on subscribers to pay for content i think we need to have these conversations because you're right these voices are disappearing i don't think it's 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 the taxpayer's job to support community newspapers or, or any kind of community media i, I th- but i do think that <clears throat> the, the authors of this this collapse uh have to be called to account uh, <clears throat> i you know the, ma- the management of, of large uh print in particular large large print conglomerates over the last number of decades has been predatory i believe uh it, it the, just the, the need to uh to uh, to make money uh, which has eventually led them into such such debt, bad management. I don't know what it is. I, I don't profess to know enough about the business side of it, but I, I know enough to understand what happens when foreign uh, hedge funds get control of large corporations that, in spite of their financial difficulties, they, they just continue to absorb vulnerable small community papers with long history of service in the country and then put them to death. This, to me, is is an appalling uh, abuse of, of of the capitalist system, and it is a, a, an appalling uh, uh, abandonment or abdication of responsibility by the by by public authorities who should be watching this carefully and should be aware of the political and the social and the cultural consequences of this trend, and that doesn't seem to me to be what's happening. You know, Aaron O'Toole can go around, around trying to raise uh, raise uh, support by saying, I am going to bring this monster, this CBC, to heel, and I'm going to take, you know, defund, and I'm going to put the money to some other use. I think he'd make a whole lot more sense if he says, I am going to find out what the hell is happening to the communications uh systems that we have in this country, whether they're broadcast, print, CBC, or private. What, what, what are the people who run these organizations, including the CBC, thinking? What, 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 is, what is their vision? CBC has a, uh, has a, a legal legislated mandate. Uh, to what extent are the managers of the CBC really honestly uh, following the spirit of that mandate? The private sector, you know, I, I've been around long enough, known a lot of the private sector operations, and it was always sort of at the core of it all, no matter how avaricious they might have been. It seemed to me to be a, a sense of, like, I got a lot of power, I got a lot of influence, so that gives me a lot of responsibility to, you know, when all the, when all the, the bills are paid and all the profits are, are put in the sock, uh, I have to really also take account of the fact that we did something 
uh, and, and how well did we do? What, how, how valuable was the impact of, of what we do uh, to, the, to the society that we live in? It is, a, it is a very interesting, and I don't want to go on and on and on. I didn't come to give a lecture. I can't plug a book. <laughs> hey, you I, I want to plug your book. I've got a question coming up about your book, but I would also, quite frankly, Lyndon, I would listen to you assess media for six hours. And so I, well, I, let me just say one thing back in the States, back about 40 years ago, every private sector TV outlet had a responsibility. If they were going to get their licenses renewed to demonstrate at license renewable time, that they were actually fulfilling a public responsibility that had no commercial value. They had to do that. And then a guy named Ronald Reagan, who was very tight with General Electric because of his, uh, his career and his acting and his, his connection with the advertising. And he came in and all of a sudden that requirement vanished from the licensing process. Overnight, the big networks no longer had to justify their licenses by, by proving some kind of social value in what they did. And everything just flipped. All of a sudden, uh, television uh, uh, journalists were becoming celebrities. They were being paid vast amounts of money. It was a competition of celebrity all over the place and, and, a, and a spiral downward in terms of the, uh, of the, of the public value of what they were doing. Mm. It's just that, it's that simple. And what is, what's, there's nothing quite that, that stark happening in Canada that I'm aware of, but it's in, it's in death by a thousand cuts, little things here and there. And the one big thing you can look at, you can say, why do, why do a couple of, a couple of American hedge funds control so much of what we consume as readers in this country? Uh, why do uh, uh, just a handful now of large corporate networks control so much of what we listen to and see? And, and I don't know the answer to that, but if, if Erin O'Toole or, or Jasmine Singh or uh, Justin Trudeau wanted to really get a serious conversation going in this election campaign, they would take it in that direction rather than just CBC good, CBC bad, hate it, love it, left wing, right wing, who cares? As long as they're delivering reliable information and, 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 and providing a platform for good ideas and, and a place to sort out the bad ideas. I think that then, then, then they're worth whatever they cost. Mm. That, I mean, this is the insight that's that's uh, established you for for who you are, uh, Lyndon. When when it comes to Canadian media, I sure appreciate your analysis. It is wild, isn't it? I mean, I won't I won't go down this path, but you take there are American television personalities making literally thirty million dollars a year. Thirty million. Uh, no. I, I mean, I remember it was a story when a Vancouver radio broadcaster and an FM morning host signed a million dollar deal. That's you know, that was the biggest deal in Canada at the time. So uh, 30 million is hard to wrap your mind around. Let, let's talk about your book, The Winter Wives. Obviously, I mean, a, a national bestseller released two weeks ago. That's got to feel good uh, at, at the center of it. Uh, the, this lawyer who can't stand golf, just like you, who, who described it as you write once. Uh, it pains me to say it, although I kind of. I can see where you're coming from because after years and years of torture, I still celebrate if I can shoot an 89 Linden. So I'm, 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 I'm hardly a sandbagger, but, but uh, this lawyer that can't stand golf, but he loves the criminal, the shady character that he plays with. And so, and so he, he's willing to pay that price. Is this, is this some personal experience? Is this somebody you interviewed once or is this, is this you writing? Actually, 
I mean, all fiction draws on experience. And in, in this particular case, yes. I had a lot of friends uh, who were really, really excellent athletes. They played football. They played hockey. They played play. And they all seemed to play golf. And, uh, you know, I was never going to be a football player or a hockey player. Uh, but they all seemed to think that I could be a golfer. And they kept torturing me until I realized, you know what, I'm just going to go along with this and, you know, make them feel better by humiliating me as often as they as they want to. And uh, and I I knew I would never even be a bad golfer. I would be a non-golfer on the golf course. And I came to terms with that. And I decided when I was doing this book, uh, there's there's a character in the, this book who's very much like somebody I I really knew well and who was a athletic and be a golfer and see a kind of a, you know, criminal. <laughs> I can't find a better word, but he was a criminal. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he and I were close for a very long period of time, and I never got to work with him. But I often thought I would, that it would be interesting if I had been in a field of work that would have been useful to him, like the law. And, and so that, these two characters emerge as, as sort of fictional uh, vehicles for me to explore uh, the nature of, of relationships, uh, the nature of how, how self-knowledge and the, na the nature of what we know about people we think we know. And, uh, and I, I sort of gradually evolved a certainty and it didn't come overnight, but we never really know as much as we think we know about the people that interest us or that we care about. Uh, we never know as much as we think we know. And the quality of a relationship will be determined by how well we accept what we learn as the relationship goes on, mm -hmm. how well we accommodate the unpleasant, frequently unpleasant surprises as we get to know more and more and more, but never everything. But we, a long relationship is a constant process of revelation. To ourselves and to the and to the people that matter to us, and and it's really tragic. You see, when a when a relationship dies, because one or the other of the parties to the relationship is unable to just accommodate some aspect of, of what they learned about a part of the nature of, of the individual that they care about, that it. They didn't really think it was there, and um, so this is the this is the book. You get four of these people. And they spend a lot of their lives getting closer and closer and closer and learning more and more and more <laughs> about each other. Uh, when, when they really thought that back when they were teenagers, they knew everything they wanted to know about each other. But as adults, they begin to discover that, you know, it's a constant process. A relationship is a constant process of discovery. And as, as one of the characters says in the book, love is uh, an unusually intense curiosity. It's, it's a drive to know more and more and more and more about someone who, who intrigues you, someone who, about whom you're infatuated. You have to know more and more. And, and that's dangerous because the more you want to learn, the more you will learn, and the more you are open and vulnerable to unpleasant surprises. Mm. As, as someone who, who saw his, his grandmother live with uh, dementia for many years as well, I mean, everyone's personal experience informs their interpretation of, uh, you know, sometimes the same words, somebody else reading them may have an entirely different feeling around it. But but that's also really another interesting angle. People need to read the books, the, the book themselves, of course. Yeah. Um, is, is that something that uh, dementia and, all, and I, first of all, let me just acknowledge I'm so grateful for your time. We didn't ask you for this long. I'll make this my 
my last question, Lyndon. But but that that's one that resonates when you when, when even the word dementia hits me. Yeah. As, as it does so many people. Is that the, ca- the case with you as well? Yeah, it, it's, I haven't had that personal, mercifully. But, but to me, dementia is the ultimate challenge to any relationship because it is the disintegration of what we know about someone. It's the disintegration of a personality. And it is a, a, a sort of a, uh, a rapid uh, revelation of, of, some, of things... We didn't know things, huge surprises. Someone who was a, a gentle soul becomes a violent, abusive person. Someone who was a, a, a doer and, and unpredictable individual becomes a sweetheart. It, it, this happens, and I've, I've seen this happen. And, and so the person who is, is dealing with someone in a case of dementia is, is constantly challenged all the time to accommodate, understand, and help with challenges that they never really thought that they would have to face. And, and so it's at the center of this story, too, because it, it kind of brings into stark relief the, an extreme case where you, you do really have to question how, how valuable is this person as a lover or a friend? How valuable is this person as a part of my life? Hmm. How far down the road do I go accepting and, and accommodating and and redesigning my own life to accommodate that person's life. Beautifully said. Sometimes it's I've got a an audience member that goes by Lalazaz that says Ryan's final question is never the final question. So I'm gonna, I'm going to prove Lalazaz wrong, and I'm going to thank you for your time. But first, I will force you to endure some praise, which we will heap upon you. Uh, Kaylin, who's listening in from Vancouver right now, says, Linda's voice is so calming. I'm listening while I work. I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to fully capture everything he's saying. <laughs> Kaylin says the book sounds excellent. She's going to order it. Um, and, and hey, we're, we're in a bit of trouble as well. We've got audience members saying Penny says she was, she, she's got errands to run and she was getting set to shut this down. She heard you were on and so she stayed and, and she's not getting anything done right now, Linda. And so I think that falls on falls on your shoulders, not mine. Uh, but, but many others are thrilled, uh, including, uh, you know, I mean, just looking at this Mark listening in from Utah and a whole bunch of others. Uh, I haven't even given a shout out to where you're joining us from right now. The, the, the great, beautiful area of Canada that is Newfoundland. Um, it's been, yeah. an, it's been an honor to have you here on the show, Lyndon. Congratulations uh, on the new book, the winter wives. And, and thanks for giving us so much of your time and, and such valuable insight today. Uh, thanks Ryan. And, and thanks to all the great people that have responded and, and through your program. And I hope you'll keep doing it and, and doing the job that uh, that really has to be done for the public of Canada. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have been here. I promise you I will, Lyndon. And, and thanks very much. That's Lyndon McIntyre, his new book, The Winter Wives, released August 10th, already a national bestseller. The guy has won 10 Gemini Awards. 10. Like if you win, you, if you win one, you are a Gemini Award winner, right? It's like the, you know, I mean, it's like it's like an, an Emmy in yeah. Canada. If you've won 10 of them, you'd have to remind him. You'd be like, so how, how did it feel to win the Gemini in 94? He'd, be, he'd probably be like, which one was that again? I don't yeah, know. There's like, like 10 how, of them. How was like 10 the of them. And then you, you introduce him and you say this, this, and then you go, oh, and by the way, he also won the Giller Prize. I was going to say, for, yeah. for the Bishop's Man, which is also no small feat. Uh, so really an unbelievable guy. And thanks to those of you that uh, every single day push off your other obligations to hang out with us here on Real Talk. We love those of you that find time to fit it in during the day. This is probably a good time to remind you that in our podcast descriptions and in our YouTube descriptions, we know, I mean, we're doing a two hour show every single day. Today, we're doing two hours and 15 minutes. 
minutes because because we can. Um, but I know that's a lot. And I know that some of you might be listening to us on your commute or on your dog walk or when the kids are quiet for a little bit, but not too quiet. Our living room furniture uh, is has now been recently adorned. Wyatt got a new set of markers and yesterday decided to put a signature all over the new. Never let your kids get too quiet. Bless his heart. It washed off. Everything's OK, everybody. But if the kids are quiet for a little while, you've got 10, 15 minutes for real talk. Sarah does a great job with time codes, letting you know when each interview starts. So you want to go to Paul Wells. It's probably going to be about 11 minutes in. You want to hear from Harmon Singh Kendall. It's probably going to be about 25 minutes in ish. You can click right on it. It'll take you right to that interview. Of course, this show would not be here without the support of our amazing sponsors. And that includes the team at Friesen Brothers. I saw that some of you were trying to pick a fight yesterday on Twitter. One of you realized in particular, after taking my word for it, that the Friesen Brothers sourdough cinnamon buns were worth the trip to wherever your closest Friesen Brothers is. You noticed that there were no raisins in those cinnamon buns. You tagged Friesen Brothers in it and you tried to start a fight and you were successful. But you'll note that I stayed out of it because although I love raisins, I do not insist that they appear in my cinnamon buns. The team at Friesen Brothers probably with similar insight. That's why they've sold millions of them over the course of the 66 years that they've been family owned and operating in 16 locations across the province of Alberta. You can find more than cinnamon buns, by the way, as well. I tried those Hatch chilies the other day from Hatch, New Mexico. Actually, really good. Did them on the grill. Fantastic. How hot? Uh, not crazy. Not crazy hot. You, they're recommending you can sub them in for the bell peppers. Right, right, right. So right, it's right. not like don't sub them in for habaneros. It's you will be in. disappointed if you're wanting something yeah. mild. I mean, but there's always those people that, that they want to sweat till their face starts to melt. That's not my style. Yeah, I'm when not I have big to on get that. a Kleenex to eat a pepper. I'm not interested. Yeah, uh, you, are you a, are you like a super hot? I, I mean, I Sam, like, we know you're I super like hot, well, but well, thank you. But uh, <laughs> guy's the best dressed guy in Edmonton. There's no, no question I, uh, about that. I'm I'm very much flavor over pain. If I'm feeling yes! more pain than getting flavor, you've gone too far. I was I was asked to participate in this charity challenge a while ago. I won't say who it is. It's it's actually a really funny model. But they're like there'd be more donations. They'd, they'd have varying degrees of chicken wings. And the hotter the wing that I would eat, the more money they would raise. I'm like, this sounds like a bit of a circus for me. Thank goodness I was double booked. And so unfortunately, I was unable to participate. <laughs> I'll be curious to see who they booked to sit in that chair. But the Hatch Chili's no way. And you, are we still doing the Friesen Brothers read? Yeah, you can find Hatch Chili's and so much more at Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. You know who else is Alberta owned, but operating across the country, in particular Western Canada, because they've got offices in Edmonton and Kamloops, but they will travel, is the team at Kubi Energy. They're bringing solar energy solutions to power your life. If you check them out online at kubienergy.ca, right on the homepage, you'll see an amazing installation they did on the Edmonton Convention Center, but they're doing these in industrial warehouses, commercial buildings, and residences, even recreational properties, as mentioned, across Western Canada. You can get in touch with their team today to find out what they can do for you. And also a big shout out to the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. We're going to be heading out to the mountains, and when we roll, we roll heavy. Like I'm talking like a little kid's kayak, golf clubs. We're going to bring our espresso machine and our popcorn maker and all the kinds of things, right? All the kinds of things. So I reached out to Brad and I said, hey, man, is there a way that we could organize something where maybe I could get my hands on a vehicle that's a little bit bigger than the one I'm in? Just just temporary. He goes, browse our inventory. Let me know what you think. 
And I said, well, Brad, I'll just remind everybody that they can do that uh, by following the links under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge have your best selection of Ram pickups of the entire Jeep lineup, including that new Grand Cherokee L with the third row of seats and so much more. It's why they've been earning the trust and return business of Albertans, Saskatchewanians, and British Columbians who travel to buy at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. We're grateful for their partnership. And also just a a reminder, if you've not yet made plans, if you've got a free evening between tomorrow night, August 26th, and September 5th, you must check out Symphony Under the Sky. This is an amazing presentation by the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra and such a cool way to introduce the young people in your lives to symphonic sound. They've got all the Hollywood hits. They've got all your favorites. Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture is going to be there. Tickets start at 20 bucks, and kids under 17 are free if they're accompanied by an adult. If you want to sit on the grass, you can find out more at windspearcenter.com. Tomorrow's going to be a busy show, and we've got a whole bunch coming up. I'm really excited, uh, including, of course, an early edition of Trash Talk. You can send that to us. Get it off your chest, whatever you need to, to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you heard today. I feel like I need to go back and re-listen. We talked about a lot, and we'll keep doing it. That's our promise to you, so long as you keep showing up. Thanks, Real Talkers. We'll see you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Carmen Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.